Hello, Devoted Geeks. Welcome to Calm Talk, the podcast extension of Geek Devotions. This is a special bonus episode of Calm Talk. Today, we're going to be sharing with you guys a special episode of Monster Island Film Vault, where I had opportunity to uh, go to the, the mythical land of Monster Island <laughs> and hang out with, with Nathan Marchen, the curator of the Film Vault. And um, it's, a, it's a great podcast. I love it a lot. Uh, Nathan's a good friend of ours. And we would like to invite you guys to check out Monster Island Film Vault after you check out this episode in our feed. Uh, the episode is called Dallas Mora versus Kong Skull Island, which aired originally on April 8th of 2020. Uh, Nathan was kind enough to pass me the MP3 for us to do this, and I want to make sure I want to make sure this is very clear. I am not just reposting his stuff. He gave me express permission to repost this episode in our feed for you, amazing devoted geeks. And like I said, I really want to encourage you guys go check him out after you listen to this podcast. Well, there'll be links in the description down below for you guys to go to his podcast. Nathan works very very hard on this podcast. There's a lot of really great information about these uh, giant monster movies, but at the same time, there's entertainment, there's a lot of laughter, there's a lot of joy that goes into these podcasts. In fact, uh, one of the things I enjoy about Nathan is that he has a whole world, like there's a story that goes around this entire podcast and there's all kinds of characters. He has people, friends of his, who've actually created characters to be in the podcast and they do some stuff on Twitter. It's a lot of fun. So that being said, let's get into today's bonus episode of Monster Island Fibbled. I mean, sorry, Com Talk by Geek Devotions. Glicks, what is going on? We are receiving a signal from a new area on the planet Geekery. All right, let's see what the planet has for us today. Opening comms in three, two, one. Live from Ogasawara, this is the Monster Island Film Vault, Episode 14, Dallas Mora vs. Kong, Skull Island. Hello, kaiju lovers, and welcome to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast seeking entertainment and enlightenment through tokusatsu. I am your host, the curator of the Vault of Viciousness, Nathan Marchand. But joining me today is none other than the mastermind behind Geek Devotions, Dallas Mora. Um, hi, um... Did anybody else notice the giant monkey uh, paw prints outside, out here on this island? Uh, yeah. You, this, I'm sure. You uh, you seem a little confused, good sir. <laughs> well, I'm allergic to bananas, and so I'm worried about oh, really? how big of a banana. This I'm allergic to yet. bananas as well. <laughs> hey, we're allergic to latex. <laughs> Apparently, <laughs> I had to discover this the hard way. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> So, so how so how many bananas is this monkey carrying around with him? Because I'm a little nervous now. I try not to keep track. I'm a little afraid to find out. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly because I'm worried that if I get within ten feet of them, it'll kill me. <laughs> yeah, let's not do that today. <laughs> All right. Oh my gosh, Jimmy, get off it! He does this every time. Every time somebody calls Kong a monkey, he has to remind us he's actually an ape, not a monkey. Yes, because Veggie Tales tells us so. We've been through this. 
right? Well, look, look, Jimmy, I understand where you're coming from, brother. I know you're a technical individual, but, you know, life and death comes in play. I don't really care if it's a monkey or an ape at all. I just don't want to die. Yes, you should concede his point. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. So, because I love hearing the funny stories about how people got to this crazy island, what brought you here? It was more of a, a mishap, accidental thing. I've actually been on the south side of the island for like the last two months what? on accident. <laughs> I've been hiding in a hole. And by the way, just so you know, uh, Godzilla likes to go out there and sunbathe every morning, apparently. <laughs> and it's awkward. Um, I do remember, think over. I heard that from Dr. Yoshida. I think he's mentioned that yeah. to me on occasion. Thank God Goji-kun, the, the little duo you got there, saved me and uh, brought me up here to the, the main building. So uh, on my podcast, we use a thing called the Impossibility Drive, which takes us to different locations. And it kind of glitched out on me, and I ended up on the island. And when I contacted Glix, who kind of runs everything, I was like, hey, can you bring me home? She was like, no, no, you cannot. There's a virus. I need you to stay there oh, for, no. for a very long time. Yeah. So cause, I've been stuck here. Yeah, because unfortunately, I mean, we had this mishap. With Michael Hamilton, the the Kaiju groupie, who's also on Kaiju Weekly, he right. there was a miscommunication, and he tried coming here when I was supposed to go see them, and ended up in a quarantine bubble because coronavirus went insane. And for whatever reason, the board of directors waited until the absolute last possible second before finally just saying, "Okay, fine, we'll close the resort." So the Monsterland Resort is closed. Everyone left. And you know, it's, so it's is been weirdly quiet around here. I was wondering where everybody was. I know. And I, I'm so I've sorry. That you... Giant lizards and giant spiders. No to the spider, by the way. No to the spider. Of course. <laughs> 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 I totally understand. We have several large spiders on here. And I am so sorry, dude. I am yeah, this so sorry. Dude. I know the resort's closed, but I will put you up for... However long, I will fight the board of directors to let you have a nice hotel room in the resort to you know recover from all of this. You are owed. <laughs> hero status, sir. You are a hero. Yes, I do my best. <laughs> <laughs> but you are joining me today to finally, after all of these months, after 14 episodes, we are entering the MonsterVerse. Come on now, let's do this. <laughs> to <laughs> to talk about Kong's latest cinematic adventure, Kong Skull Island, the second entry in the MonsterVerse. And then after that, because this is a period piece and it is, this is all over the movie, especially at the beginning, we will be talking about our toku topic for today will be the end of the Vietnam War. We ready for this? Let's go. Kong is a vicious but protective force of nature, an ape-like Muto, or Titan, residing on Skull Island. He is worshipped as a god by the Iwi tribe and described by the protagonist as an alpha predator and king. He keeps the skull crawlers underground, thereby protecting the Iwi, and defends his home from the military. He has a vendetta with the skull crawlers because they killed his parents, making him the last of his kind. He displays some anthropomorphic intelligence. The ferocious and ravenous skull crawlers are a species of two-legged reptilian mutos native to Skull Island. These hypervores attack and eat anything around them due to their hyperactive metabolisms. 
the big one, or Skull Devil in the novelization, which seems to be the pack leader, displays more intelligence by avoiding attacks from the soldiers. After being freed from the Hollow Earth, they seek to dominate Skull Island's ecosystem. The island's other nasty natives include the Mother Longlegs, Spore Mantis, Skur Buffalo, Mire Squid, and Leaf Wings. These creatures either attack the protagonist to defend their territory or find food, or they mind their own business. The two-fisted and pragmatic Captain James Conrad is a mercenary hired by Monarch as a tracker and guide for their expedition to Skull Island. While initially in it for the money, his goal later becomes to get himself and the dwindling survivors off the island or protect Kong from the soldiers. Lieutenant Colonel Preston Packard is a vengeful and loyal soldier commanding the platoon guarding the expedition as a way to win a war he felt they abandoned. After Kong's attack, he's hell-bent on avenging his men by killing the big ape. The street-smart and curious Mason Weaver is a self-described anti-war photographer who tags along on the expedition hoping to get a big scoop. Once on the island, she documents everything while helping everyone escape or preserving Kong's life. Lieutenant Hank Marlowe is a manic and possibly insane fighter pilot marooned on Skull Island during World War II. He spends 28 years surviving on the island with the Iwi while hoping for rescue so he can be reunited with his wife and son. The intelligent but obsessive William Randa is a monarch operative leading the expedition as a means to prove that monsters are real after years of being called crazy. His partner, Houston Brooks, is a brilliant and insightful geological advisor who comes with Randa because he believes in the man's mission, if not his motives. The human and kaiju plotlines are unified. While unknown to many of them before arriving, the protagonist's expedition to Skull Island is to investigate the monsters living on it. Afterward, they fight and or elude the creatures to reach a rendezvous point to escape the island. Several characters protect Kong from Packard and his men. Kong is perceived as the problem when it's actually the skull crawlers. Kong attacks the helicopters while they drop bombs to get seismic readings, killing many of the soldiers. Packard and his men set a trap for Kong by leading him to a lake laced with napalm, which they ignite with bombs. Before Packard can kill him, Conrad and Weaver arrive and convince the soldiers that Packard is in the wrong. They escape, and Packard is crushed by Kong. The Eighth Wonder is then accosted by the Big One. Throughout the film, the protagonists are attacked by the Skullcrawlers and other monsters, suffering many casualties, although they are able to kill some of the smaller creatures. One soldier attempts to get the Big One to eat him while holding live grenades so his comrades can escape, but the monster swats him against a mountain. The problem is solved when Kong ambushes the big one and disembowels it after a hard fight. He saves Weaver from being eaten and allows the survivors to escape. The screenplay by Dan Gilroy, Max Borenstein, and Derek Connolly with a story by John Gattens is a simple adventure thriller with an ensemble cast and some subplot activity. Most of the characters are archetypes, but their subplots are developed enough to explore themes and add some pathos. The special effects were created by Industrial Light and Magic. Kong's character model was the densest they ever created with over 500,000 polygons, half of which were in his face to maximize expression. While filming on location, ILM utilized a program called Cineview that would put a CGI animatronic of Kong onto a tablet to allow director Jordan Vogt-Roberts to coordinate the camera for each shot. While actor Terry Notary did mocap sessions for reference, much of Kong's animation was keyframed. His 19 million hairs alone took two artists a year to create. The film was shot on location in Hawaii, Australia, and Vietnam, giving it beautiful natural scenery. Real vintage military helicopters were used in several scenes. 
the overall effect is quite impressive as modern Hollywood blockbusters go. This is a somewhat dark and often horrific film with a black sense of humor and a moderate amount of gravitas. Like the other MonsterVerse films, it straddles the line between myth and science, often portraying fantastical events in realistic situations. For the most part, this isn't an experimental film since it follows many of the trends of modern blockbusters and uses many of the same elements seen in previous Kong films. Some aspects were made in response to audiences' reactions to Godzilla 2014, such as showing Kong sooner and more often. That being said, the film establishes style by being the first Kong film to take place almost entirely on Skull Island. Kong is never captured or exploited by humans. Most notably, this is the first film where the big ape has no quote-unquote love interest, which is a radical departure. However, it does reinforce the style of films like Apocalypse Now. While originally conceived as a standalone Kong prequel, the film was made with the intention of expanding the MonsterVerse and setting up the next two entries in the series. Along those lines, it was meant to be a fun and entertaining flick for general audiences, monster fans, and Kong fans alike. The film grossed $566.7 million worldwide on a budget of $185 million, with an additional $136 million spent on international advertising. So it needed $450 to $500 million to break even. This makes it the highest grossing film in the MonsterVerse so far. It has a 75% rating on Rotten Tomatoes with 377 reviews and a 6.6 with 254,757 ratings on IMDb. It is generally liked by Kong fans and Kaiju fans. The government organization Monarch seeks to study monsters on Skull Island but keeps itself and its activities top secret. Randa and Brooks clash with government officials over their quote-unquote crazy scientific theories, which makes the official question Monarch's purpose. Patriotism and anti-war activism clash with Packard's disdain for Weaver since he blames people like her for the U.S. losing the Vietnam War. Humanity and nature collide on Skull Island as the characters battle its carnivorous critters. The natural balance of Skull Island is thrown off by human activity, which releases the skull crawlers and forces Kong to act. Kong and the other monsters exist in a place that can't be fully explained by myth or science. While it seems like a simple blockbuster, several themes can be mined from it. Like Captain Ahab before him, Packard's single-minded quest for revenge shows the fruitlessness of such an endeavor as it endangers the survivors, gets several people killed, and ultimately results in his death. As Conrad states, no man comes home from war. Not really. Several soldiers make the hard choice to defy their CO in order to do the right thing. The Iwi live peacefully with nature. Family and fidelity are praised with Marlowe's determination to be reunited with his wife and son. Kong endures great hardship to protect his home and the Iwi. Quote-unquote, civilized man is taught to respect and fear nature as they come to grips with how small they are compared to it and how easily it will strike back if they upset the natural order. I have fulfilled my contractual obligations. On to the Toku Talk! All right, now that I have fulfilled my contractual obligations because Jimmy writes that entertaining info dump every month for these episodes and I am required to read it, we can now get to the meat and potatoes of this discussion. So... I gotta say, Jimmy's a talented writer. Oh, yes. I will give him that. He, he and I butt heads sometimes, but he does good work. He does. Yes, go ahead. Rub it in. I admitted it. On the air. Moving on. So, 
Dallas. Let's start with you as the guest. What is your history with Kong Skull Island? All right, so my history with Kong Skull Island itself is I honestly only watched it because I found out that it is in the same universe as the legendary Godzilla monster universe. Only reason why I got into it. I've never been a big King Kong fan in the past. I watched the original Kong years ago when I was a kid. Like, I'm talking about one of those early morning, like, probably in my early morning, I mean, 3 a.m. monster movies. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) And, like, there's no reason I should have been awake. Like, I'm not even sure, like, where my parents were. But (laughs) but (laughs) I watched the original Kong that early in the morning one day. And I was like, okay, this is interesting. And I legitimately fell in love with cinema watching it in several other films because of the techniques that were used in those films. But it was never really just like, yeah, I want to watch King Kong stuff. I was more interested into like giant lizards, mostly because I like dragons. And, you know, <laughs> Godzilla is kind of, kind of dragonish. And so I watched uh, Godzilla, and then I found out that King Kong was part of the series. It was part of this universe. I'm like, I love a good deep lore. What's happening with Kong's Go Island? So that's the reason why I watched it. And I was like, this is so cool. And then come to find out, we we're talking about this earlier. There's a huge deep lore in the comic books. I'm a big comic book nut. So now I'm like, I need to know more of this thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you, you were bringing stuff, some stuff up to me that somehow, despite all of my months of working here, I never heard about any of it. <laughs> bro, bro, it's, it's deep in the tunnels, man. That's why. You got to dig in the tunnels. Tunnel. I know. I need to track down all those comic books and get caught up, man. Because <laughs> there's a there's been one for all three of the MonsterVerse movies so far. And right. yeah, so I think I owe it to myself and to the listeners to, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to to read them. Monarch is watching you. I'm just telling you right now. Oh, shut up, Jimmy. You don't need to remind me. Gaps in my knowledge. Yeah, I'm fine. I get it. You've read all of them three times. That's fine. Good for you. <laughs> Uh, sometimes man. you must be in that comic shop that's down in the in the hollow earth theory area right down there yeah there has been some talk about the you know there being some at least one passage of the hollow earth that has found its way to monster island like a lot of other things i've noticed <laughs> <laughs> this island is a magnet for weirdness let's just say <laughs> <laughs> so the point me being here obviously impossibility drive (laughs) this film is interesting in a lot of ways and i am really glad that i have been covering these films chronologically because i'm seeing a progression here there's things that are in skull island that actually peter jackson did first kong in this is the last of his kind and we see the bones of his parents in this yeah which was also done in the Peter Jackson film, I do think it helps to create a sense of sympathy with him. Now, I don't think you get as much pathos with Kong in this as you do in the Peter Jackson film, but I think that's in large part because Jordan Vogue Roberts, who directed this, wanted to do a lot of things that were different, which I think Mm -hmm. might be why you know there may have been some people who don't quite like this movie as much because it does a lot of things that are different. This is the first time that we have a Kong story where he's not lovesick over somebody. But at the same time, like when you get into the mythos of this Kong, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm scratching the surface and I would love to hear from any of your viewers who know more about this mythos. 
but there does seem to be a sympathy for a female. I mentioned to you beforehand that in the comic books, I don't know how many thousands of years before the events of Kongsville Island, you discovered there were tribes on this island, and there was like a whole race of Kongs, and these tribes all had their own Kong. And there was always a woman, a singular female, who cared for the Kong. And each tribe had their own methodology on how they tamed the Kong. And so, like, I think that when you see Kong, like, kind of take care of Homegirl in this film, I think that's, the, that's their callback. When he reaches down for Mason, like when she's in the water, mm-hmm. that's their callback to the mythos of there's a female who seems to tame them. Yes. That, that, you know, instead of it just being the lovesick, oh, you know, the awkwardness that from, we're not going to talk about the 1976. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> it's more of a there's bred into them this there is a person who cares about me for some reason. You can kind of see that with her in this movie where she seems to show sympathy for him and there's this unlocking in him for her. Yes, which is certainly an homage to the past Kong films, to that classic story, while on the other hand, doing its own thing. Kong's relationship with humans in this is interesting, to say the least, particularly the natives. It, mm-hmm. The natives in this are a far cry, certainly, from the Peter Jackson version, where they are absolutely terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> they are frightening and, and kind right. of senseless, too. We don't even know mm-hmm. why they take Anne and offer her to Kong. There's no explanation whatsoever. In 1933, it's because she's blonde and she's different. So they're like, oh, you're the golden woman. We want you for our God, that sort of a thing. Right. Same thing in the 76 version. It, mm-hmm. But here, what separates them from all of the previous versions of the natives, and I've known people who've actually taken a little bit of issue with this, is that they are actually very kind almost pacifists in a way. I don't think they're complete pacifists because they build weapons and are not afraid to use them. And we're told that if you touch any of their sacred things on their shrines and stuff, they will cut your hand off. So (laughs) I don't think they're complete pacifists. But considering that they live in a savage environment, and I said this on social media and I'm going to say it again, maybe you can vouch for it because you've survived on the island for two months. Monster Island is still safer than Skull Island. <laughs> <laughs> I would concur with that. I don't, I, mean, I don't care what anyone a, says. Aside from the giant spider, I, it's been an enjoyable time. I'm yeah, enjoying it. Yeah, but regardless, the, what makes them remarkable is the fact that they live in a savage environment, but they themselves are not savage. And mm. I need to do research on that. I unfortunately didn't quite have the time to look into that. You know, is like is that anthropologically possible that you could have a tribe in a savage environment that does that itself does not become savage? That would well, that's a very that, interesting thing to I think to try to figure out. I think it matters the discussion of what you're defining as savage. I think that the fact that they are not as technologically robust you know, they're not, you know, as quote unquote advanced as modern civilization, then yeah, they're savage in that direction. But they're like, just like cruel and mean. I think we have to go back to the previous mythos, uh, which I was explaining to you beforehand, where you had two methodologies of controlling the Kongs. The one methodology was teach the Kongs to fear you, where the other one was more loving, more caring, show respect for the Kongs, and the Kongs respect you. And so I'm wondering, again, I haven't finished the comic book. I'm wondering if there was something that happened, a war that took place. And the tribe that we saw is the descendants of the tribe that taught to respect the Kongs, and the Kongs will respect you. 
That actually makes a lot of sense. I think also it can be inferred that the tribe behaves the way it does despite their environment because Kong is keeping a balance on the island. That's a big thing. That's a huge theme actually throughout the MonsterVerse films is this idea of balance. And it Mm -hmm. comes through in this because it's brought up that Kong is king around there. I wonder if that was a legal thing. We can't call him King Kong, but we'll say Kong is king. But right, because <laughs> you know, as I explained with John LeMay, and I think it was episode ten on King Kong Lives, the King Kong copyright is ridiculous. <laughs> but <laughs> but he keeps everything in line. You know, right. He's the alpha on there, mm-hmm. and exactly. the humans muck everything up the outsiders they muck everything up because they drop bombs to do seismic tests to see if Apollo theory is right and it awakens the skull crawlers and they come crawling out of their holes and now kong's like ah crap i gotta go to work (laughs) not again not again freaking again yeah (laughs) and considering the fact that kong is described as being young we could be looking at the kong equivalent of maybe a teenager or a young adult so he's probably very perturbed because (laughs) he's like a moody teenager he's a moody teenager he's like oh great you oh Right. You killed my mom and dad, and now I got (laughs) it. Which was, that was something. uh, This, unfortunately, was before we recorded, but I wish it had been recorded. (laughs) Danny DeManna, in the previous episode, we were talking about this element. Kong Mm -hmm. seeing his parents get killed, and I'm like, holy crap, Kong is Batman. (laughs) (laughs) So does that make Godzilla Superman now? (laughs) I don't know, maybe. Because, <laughs> I mean, you know, nigh indestructible, inherited his powers. <laughs> you no. Know, Incredible rivalry <laughs> with the other guy. It might be. Holy crap, oh, man. Oh, I my think God. He might have just created something. <laughs> you might have just discovered the, the secret of all this, man. I think I did. <laughs> I, <laughs> listeners, if any of you are artists and you decide to do a Batman Kong fusion, Please right. send it to me, and I will at- share the snot out of that. <laughs> we need to holler at those guys there. Did the the, uh, the Batman Godzilla thing? I think we just found their uh, their next uh, <laughs> their next <series>. project. <laughs> Bat Kong. <laughs> I am the justice. I am the knight. <laughs> I have a banana. <laughs> <laughs> I, I now seriously want to see Kong go up to the big one in this movie. He's like, I am vengeance. I am the knight. I am King Kong. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my awesome. gosh. <laughs> and the whole conversation gets derailed. <laughs> it did. <laughs> you said this is an island that attracts weirdness. <laughs> Definitely. But another thing I noticed while we were watching this, actually, because, you know, I, ma- I made sure you had some extra buttery popcorn in the screening room because, you know, you had Bro, enough time. Let me say something. Yeah. That was great. That was yeah. the best part being on the side. Was that popcorn? Oh, yeah. I'm a popcornolic. I'm an expert on popcorn, and this was the best popcorn ever. Oh, yeah. I don't know what you do. I don't know what kind of corner you're growing out here, but it's awesome. I'm not sure. Sometimes I wonder about some of the scientists around here. But anyway, uh-huh. <laughs> one of the things I noticed watching this 
the, there are some also some connections to the 1976 film because this takes place in the 70s, just like that one. Though, interestingly, <laughs> this one is three years before Kong 76. Oh. And the other thing that makes this Kong film unique compared to the other ones, not only do we not have a lovesick Kong, but this is also the first Kong film where he doesn't get off the frickin' island. <laughs> <laughs> the whole movie is set on Skull Island. Well, except right. for the early parts. But once they get there, they're there for the whole time. And their goal, and I remember learning this in my screenwriting class, once you've done your exposition, you have your inciting incident, you have to give the characters in your film, in your script, a goal. And pretty quickly, once Kong spears that helicopter with a tree, because he loves spearing things with trees. <laughs> Trust me, I've seen all the Kong movies. I know this. That was the most epic scene too, man. Yeah. Once that inciting incident is done, the goal for the characters is get off the island. And they have a time limit because <laughs> they have to rendezvous at a certain point within three days. So there's a lot of tension. So it's a right. simple goal, but it works for this. And that's mm -hmm. the thing that I think is interesting. There are points when I was watching this, especially the first time I watched this, although this time around, not quite as much. But there were points, you mentioned Godzilla 2014. And there were... Mm -hmm. I thought unfair criticisms lobbied against that film. And in some ways I felt like Skull Island was a response to that. So people said, hmm. oh, you know, we have to wait an hour to see Godzilla or 45 minutes or whatever it was. We don't like that. So in this one, within two minutes, before the credits even roll, right. you know, we see Kong's face. We see his hand in his yeah. face. So you get exactly. it quickly. And there are multiple monster action sequences in this there's a, a fair amount of screen time given to the monsters and they appear mm. a lot and all of that. That was another complaint lobbied against Godzilla 2014. It's like, Godzilla doesn't which, have enough screen time. And, which know. is a shame about that, though, because I love the fact that Godzilla was more of a force than he was an actual character. Mm -hmm. Like, that's what made Godzilla in 2014 so great is that everyone was aware of him. His presence was known throughout the entire film. Yes. And when he showed up, you had this payoff. Yes. And I feel like with this film, first off, his the first first appearance where he's like just, they have the music playing and the helicopters going and everything, and he's just wiping them out. That was epic. It was fantastic. But honestly, it made Kong feel small for the rest of the film for me. That scene? Like, I know, that no, the fact that it was so early in the film. Uh, because you became, he, he became such a, oh, there's Kong. Oh, there's Kong. Like, he was just yeah. everywhere in the film. Instead of being this force that everyone reckoned, like knew, it was a matter of, yeah, he's a character. He's there. Look at him. One of my criticisms, I don't want to get too negative too early about this, but no, no. I will say that I do think the film would have benefited from not actually showing you Kong in that pre-credit mm -hmm. sequence so that the, mm -hmm. there was a greater impact when you get to that helicopter battle. Right. A much greater impact. And so I think if you wanted that scene to end with the Japanese fighter pilot and Marlo, young Marlo, mm -hmm. stopping their fight because Kong showed up, I think what would have been better would have been to not actually show you Kong's hand or his face. Just have them right. stop. Here, we'll, we'll hear Kong. And then they yes. stop fighting, and then they just turn around, and they just look up because they've seen something gigantic, and you hear Kong roar. And that was it. Yeah. Leave that it at that. Perfect. Leave it at that. So then when we get the big reveal, which is about 30 minutes or so into the movie, Right. There was there would be a much greater impact. Sure. 
I want to get into the characters yes. with this Let's because do I do think the characters also in a way were a response to 2014. I've heard people complain about the characters in Godzilla 2014, particularly our main character whose name escapes me, but he was Quicksilver in Avengers. <laughs> I can't remember the actor's name, unfortunately. Yes, Jimmy, put right. it in your notes. See, I, I saw you reaching for that button. I caught you this time. <laughs> We've been at this long enough. I I can catch you with my periphery, <laughs> but anyway, quick man. Yeah, <laughs> I've had to be. Anyway, people complained about that. They love Brian Cranston, but spoiler warning: mm-hmm. he dies forty five minutes into the movie. So then everyone said, <laughs> but all the rest of the characters are stale and they don't work. I disagree with that. I think right. Ford Brody, that's the character's name. Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. intended to be an everyman. He's not meant to be some larger than life character. He's an everyman. That's how I look right. at it. So you get to this one, and they try really hard to give the characters personality, and I do think they succeed at that, but a couple of the characters that we have in here are also kind of stock characters. The gung-ho yeah. soldier, the roguish tracker, the no-nonsense reporter. You know, we've seen stuff like this right. before. It was kind of flat. I mean, it really was. The, the character base. Now, here's a question. Do you think they left the characters based that way because they wanted you to see Kong as the main character? That's an argument that I've actually heard, not for this movie. I've heard that for Godzilla King of the Monsters, the new film. But I also think it goes to the fact that this film was intended to be very pulpy, very much like a, a pul- okay. like an old school pulp fiction sort of story. Yeah. I don't mean the movie Pulp Fiction. I mean like the actual no, no. <laughs> like old Where's pulp, the dancing? Yeah. Like <laughs> I'm talking about old pulp magazine stories, which did have an influence on the original Kong back in the day. And I think that's I what they were that. going for with this, where you would have these more, for lack of a better term, these more archetypal sort of characters. Mm-hmm. They would have personality, they would have interesting things about them, but they aren't necessarily mm-hmm. meant to be really deep characters. Indiana Jones is the same way. You watch Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indy isn't necessarily you know, a really well-rounded, three-dimensional character, but he's really right. cool and has a lot of personality. Exactly. That's why we love him. It wasn't right. until the later films, particularly Last Crusade, where they really started expanding on it, but at that point, we were already in love with Indy, so this was just icing on the cake at that point. Right. So I think that's what they were intending to do here, but I also think I'm just going to throw this out here, <laughs> but there are so many Marvel Cinematic Universe actors in this movie. There are, man. It is crazy because we have Samuel L. Jackson, we have we have John C. Riley, and we have Tom Hiddleston, and we have Brie Larson, who hadn't been Captain Marvel yet, but she's in this movie with all these other right. Marvel alums. It is, it's a little bit crazy when you stop and think about it, but I think at this point, there's been so many MCU movies that pretty much everybody right. in Hollywood has been in an MCU movie at this point. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's hard not to make another blockbuster without somebody from there showing up. But we had four of them exactly. in this. It's crazy. Oh, but it's anyway, wild, so I think one of the reasons that they did that, you know, we have these really cool characters. I love Conrad. Conrad is really cool. Tom Hiddleston. Yeah. They introduce him yeah. really well. He's very much like a Han Solo type. There you go. You can scratch that off of your Monster Island Film Vault bingo Star Wars reference. (laughs) (laughs) So he's very much like a Han Solo type of character. And I also, Mm. I have this theory. I have no place to confirm this. Maybe Jimmy can figure this out for his notes. His name is James Conrad, but I think he's named after Joseph Conrad, the author, who wrote Heart of Darkness. 
which would be appropriate because the original Heart of Darkness, that style of literature was influential in the original movie. That book Mm. is then quoted in the Peter Jackson King Kong. And Mm. this movie, I'm making tons of crazy connections. This movie was heavily, heavily influenced by Apocalypse Now. Yes, it really was. You could tell. Yeah, which is itself an adaptation of Heart of Darkness. Hmm. Boom. Man, I, that's that's a <laughs> lot of connectors right there. You're welcome. <laughs> so My I mind is officially blown. Yeah. So I'm wondering if that's where they got the name. But mm-hmm. you, when you have these archetypal characters in this, you know, and even John Goodman's character is kind of your, an archetypal scientist, although he has an interesting backstory as well, because it sounds like he survived potentially a Godzilla attack in World War II. Yeah. So the ship that they showed, I think, if I remember correctly, that's the same ship from when they showed the the little snippet clippets, like the the newsreels mm-hmm. from the first Godzilla film. And so he does seem like to be like he was the only guy who survived a Godzilla attack. Or I'm wondering something else. Did they ever confirm that they woke up Godzilla, or that Godzilla? woke up in response to something that they woke up. If I remember correctly, and Jimmy may correct me, I don't think he was awakened by anything, but they did do the Castle Bravo test in 1954 to try to kill him. Right. Which is a little bit different. So the implication, I think, is that Godzilla's been around for a while. Or, given what we've seen in Godzilla King of the Monsters, it could have been one of the other Titans, which is an interesting thing. That terminology didn't show up until King of the Monsters and this. They're still calling the Mutos which was a right. Godzilla 2014 thing. It was meant to be a catch-all term, but then it's I think it's been so identified with the uh, you know, with the opponent monsters from that movie that I think they've decided we need to come up with a new term. And I actually yeah. prefer the name Titan, to be honest. It sounds less scientific. I do too. I, it sounds less scientific, but it sounds like it's more, using the word Titan sounds like they're going back to more of a Greek mythology. Yeah. Like, these guys have a mythos that have been here forever, and they are the titans that people used to talk about. Yeah. I have a whole spiel about why I think the name Titan is great, but I will save that for a future episode. Building off of that. Shadowing. Yeah. I do that a lot. But building off of that, it's interesting because Vogue Roberts intentionally made a lot of decisions, particularly with the presentation of Kong and the design of Kong, why he's larger. This is the largest version of Kong to appear in a film other than the Japanese King Kongs uh, from King Kong versus Godzilla, the Toho Kongs. Mm -hmm. This is the largest one. He's over 100 feet tall and still growing, which might explain why in the now infamous three-second clip of the Godzilla versus Kong trailer that got leaked. He looked like he was as tall as Godzilla <laughs> on the aircraft carrier. <laughs> Which you I've, keep, still, you, I've avoided that, that leak. Yeah, people need to get over <laughs> that because they're all thinking, what? Godzilla and Kong can't fight on an aircraft carrier? It would sink. And my first thought was, Godzilla and Kong are fighting on an aircraft carrier. This is awesome. <laughs> right? Anyway, like just enjoy the moment, guys. Yeah. And also, there are aircraft carriers that large. Right. Just saying. Anyway, Vogue Roberts intentionally wanted people to look at this version of Kong and say, that's a god. Not, that's a large yeah. animal or whatever. That's a god. He wanted that right. sense of awe, which I think explains, you know, going back to that scene we were talking about, they show Kong in silhouette against the sunset. He's gigantic. He's standing up straight, which is not like a real gorilla. They've made him more of a movie monster in this, in terms of design, where he's not walking like a real gorilla. He's walking upright. So he's like a gorilla, but isn't really a gorilla. 
And you know, he just yeah, he does seem something more evolved than normal. Yeah, gorilla. and that was their and idea not just by his this. size. Mm-hmm. And so like, he even like in the way he fought was very human like. Yes, although using trees as weapons is not new. <laughs> even the thirty three <laughs> Kong used a tree once. And uh, King Kong versus Godzilla, he famously shoved a tree down Godzilla's throat. <laughs> so, the, I, I was very fond of the, especially the first time I saw this movie in the theater, the when he picked up the tree and then you know scraped off the branches and then just smacks the skull, the Dude. big one with it. It was very visceral. I'm not gonna lie, I, I kind of cheered when that happened. I was like, "Yeah, get him!" Yeah, I think that that and when he uh, jumps off the top of the mountain and smashes the rock against the the thing's head, those are the uh, stand up and cheer moments for sure. The oh, fist man. pumping moments. Anyway, First getting moment. uh, getting back to the characters, I think we have these archetypal characters because let's be honest, Marlo steals every scene he's in. <laughs> he is right the there. best character in this whole movie. <laughs> <laughs> I think he just breaks up because everyone else is so rigid and so straight. Conrad's like, I'm here on a mission. And then he realizes it's all gone to crap. It's like, we got to get off the island. Jackson's just at like, Jackson's character. Packard. Uh, Packard. Yeah. Yeah. He became Ahab. Like, yes. He, uh, he became Ahab. You and I are on the same wavelength. Dick. I was watching. So like, he's Captain Ahab. Exactly. He's Captain exactly. Ahab. Kong is his Moby Dick. There's another literary like connection for you. <laughs> there you go. But that's all his thing was. Weaver, she was, I don't know. I, the, the, the act, the, the character was interesting to a degree, but she was just there to take pictures and to expose the war. But Marlo, it's interesting because you bring in just like, he has a level of insanity oh, going yeah. on from isolation. <laughs> just be glad and you it, only it, had two months. He had 28 years. I'm just. <laughs> Ooh, man. Let me tell you something. <laughs> but he, his disruption into the story, it adds life to those scenes yes. like he breaks up the serious tone and you and you you almost get to breathe a little more because mm-hmm. there, there is so much seriousness going through and then you're like oh wait i'm here to enjoy a film mm-hmm. about a giant freaking ape <laughs> yeah yeah well <laughs> we like, relax. I, and the thing i love about marlo is he definitely he fits in with that pulp fiction sort of story that they're going with here because he sounds like a character that you would see in that kind of a story. Okay, World War II fighter pilot shot down by a Japanese pilot. He shot him down too, and then they try to kill each other, which, by the way, I looked it up because I was wondering, like, did Japanese fighter pilots actually have swords? They did. They actually did. Those swords were called guntos, and the one he was likely using, I'm not 100% sure, but it might have been a shin gunto. Mm -hmm. So that was a thing. And he's got the bomber jacket, so it looks... He has a really great look. And I love that he kept the uniform up, which was cool, and the bomber jacket. And he kept the sword so that he has a unique weapon that's a little bit anachronistic. He's hung up with the natives so he knows their culture and their language and their custom. And he knows the lay of the land way better than all the rest of them. And he built a boat out of airplane parts. Like, that was so cool. And And possibly pure tetanus. (laughs) Right. And and used a baseball for a lever. I mean, how cool is that? Yeah, and... Here's another thing. I'm from Indiana. He's from okay. Chicago. He's a Cubs fan. Hey, it's wonderful. No wonder you like him. <laughs> <laughs> I love the I love the that conversation that he has with all the characters. Like, hey, the Cubs win the World Series yet? It's like, no, they haven't. And they're acting like it's never going to happen. I'm like, 
right? Just, just six <laughs> months before this movie came out, <laughs> the Cubs won a World Series. <laughs> Back to the Future oh, Part God. Two was right. It was just off by a year. <laughs> exactly. You know? but, I mean, it was such a like he was such a great character all the way through. That broke up the again he broke up the stuff, but there was so much genius in him at the same time. Mm-hmm. Like the fact that like he could survive on the island, the fact that he's connected with the individuals, that made him a rounded character. Yeah, he was funny, he was a little crazy, but you realize this character, like, there's there's a story behind this guy. Oh and yeah, there's so it, much story with him. There's so much then, story with that. Vogue Roberts even said in his commentary that he would love to do a prequel movie that's just Marlowe surviving on the island. <laughs> I would I would I'm like, you know what? I would watch that movie. Heck, make right. it a comic book. I will read that comic book. <laughs> Do it, man. I like, want that story. I would story. love to hear more of this guy's story and how he survived. Like, I like, I, I kind of like survival stories anyway, and uh, people adapting to what's happening around them, and especially with him interacting with, oh, what was the character's name? The Japanese guy that he called him. What do you call him? I forget, unfortunately. should have wrote it down. Oh, my, yeah. But, like, hearing their you, story. You take care of that for me, Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little bit of him talking about the character and all this other stuff. I feel like I got to know more about him than I did James Conrad and Packard. Other than Marlowe, the most well-rounded and developed character, although it's kind of a distance second, is Packard. Packard has layers to him. Yeah, he's gung-ho. He definitely has a Captain Ahab complex. But you also can tell that like a good military commander, he very much cares about his men. Mm-hmm. And he has a strong sense of pride. And it was wounded by the fact that, as he put it, we didn't lose the war, we abandoned it. Exactly. So, So, like, do you think his thing against Kong, was his war against Kong a, I'm going to destroy this monster because it killed my men? Or was it a, I need a win. I need to finish something. I need to go out in a blaze of glory. So I was cheated it. I was robbed of it in Vietnam. Yes, I think it's both. Okay, that makes sense. It's not outrightly stated, but I do think it's mm-hmm. definitely both. Uh, well, it's a little. It's more directly stated because Packard says it's because Kong killed my men. Right. But I think the underlying reason that we get, because you, like I said, you'd see early on in the film, he's not happy with the fact that the United States left Vietnam and essentially right. lost that war. He needs a win. Right. His pride is wounded. He Mm. even says very patriotic things in this film. He says, we're soldiers. We do the dirty work so our countrymen don't have to go to bed afraid. Right. And they shouldn't even know that something like this giant ape is real. Yeah. So there is a level of revenge, much like Captain Ahab, except unlike Captain Ahab, who wanted personal revenge because Moby Dick crippled him. It could almost be interpreted as justified. He's like... I'm killing this thing because he's murdered my men. Right. But on the other hand, what makes the conflict weird and kind of blurs the line between who's really the monster here is Kong could have just been defending his home. They're the invaders. Let's be honest here. I mean, you could almost look at it as kind of like, this is just a thought that just occurred to me. You could almost look at it as something of a metaphor for Vietnam. These people are just coming in. Kong sees them as invaders, so he is responding to them as right. anyone would. I mean, Marlowe even says it. You, you know, you don't come to someone's house and drop bombs in it unless you're picking a fight. Exactly. And that's exactly what happens. Kong responds. And that, that is the, the whole thing about him. I mean, like, 
I think that's what made Khan such a tragic character for us to latch onto throughout the whole film was the fact that he was simply defending his home. And to be honest, they made it sound like the gold crawlers were basically asleep all the time. This is a terrible analogy, but him smacking those guys out of the sky was the equivalent of him slapping a alarm clock that was waking up somebody before it needed to go off. Yeah. Like, that's really what it was. Is I think it wasn't just him like, oh, you're attacking my land. It's like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, yeah. You're about to unleash something I don't want to fight, especially when you learn the backstory that Kong seems that he's put these things to rest. And the big nasty one that killed his family, he knows that he doesn't want that to be awakened. Yeah, because that's going to make everything very unpleasant. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and since we're on the subject of the skull crawlers, I, I do want to mention that you actually have, have seen the inspiration for the skull crawlers. It was only now? on screen for a couple of seconds, but the, <laughs> in the original King Kong, there is a two legged lizard that appears yeah. very briefly. I remember that, that was the inspiration for the skull crawlers. Okay. I got a lot of respect for that. Yeah. I think it's wonderful. <laughs> I, I love when films do that, when they take small things and they do that, when they, they do something that's a, um, what's we're looking for? Come an homage. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. that, that to me makes a film even better. Mm-hmm. Going back when we were talking about Kong, Brie Larson mentioned in the Blu-ray special features that when she did the scene where she's, she's touching Kong, uh, Kong's face, which you see that again in Kong and, uh, in not Kong, but, uh, Godzilla King of the monsters <laughs> and another character right. touching the monster's face. She right. said that she thought back to the first time that she got to walk up to an elephant for the first time. And, how the sense that she got from this elephant is that it is incredibly powerful and has the upper hand, but is choosing not to exert that power on her. It, you know, an elephant right. could easily kill her, crush her, you know, because it's larger right. and stronger, but it chooses not to. And right. I think that's a wonderful way to look at Kong in this. Yeah, he's probably, a, a, you know, an angry adolescent at points, but you can kind of understand why. Yeah. Absolutely. You see that played out when he's protecting uh, Mason and like he has this concern of like, did I hurt her? <laughs> you know? Yes. And I really do appreciate the way they made, they played out the way he responds to things mm-hmm. because he is that this big bulking destru- ball of destruction, this hairy ball of destruction, but he has so much care and gentleness at the same time. Mm-hmm. Which, like it, again, he became a rounded character. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to think of Kong as a character, but he really is, especially mm-hmm. compared to Godzilla. Godzilla is, in the MonsterVerse particularly, is more of a creature that you spend your time in awe of. You don't right. necessarily get to know him. Right. He has some mild connections with humans, but for the most part, he's so beyond them, compared to Kong anyway. And I think that goes Absolutely. back to the fact that Kong is a primate, so more closely related to yeah. humans. It's easier to anthropomorphize Kong compared to Godzilla. Sure, absolutely. It's just that I think that's what makes the tone difference between the two films. That's what makes them. Again, Godzilla traditionally, in my opinion, has been a force that people experience. And that, again, that's what made, the, my opinion, first Godzilla film that Legendary did so great was he's this great all in thing. And that's the reason why in King of the Monsters, I think that he can be seen, that it made sense for him to be the king of the monsters. He is a, a force to be reckoned with. Whereas Kong, he's not a force to be reckoned with, but he is, again, in their mythos they built, he's a protector. Yes. And his protection is just, this is my property. This is my land. 
Mm-hmm. Get off my land. <laughs> you know? Get off my lawn. <laughs> exactly. Get off my lawn, you crazy kids with your helicopter, woolly birds, guns and stuff. Oh, crap. You woke up the, the big angry gophers. <laughs> <laughs> I have to kill the gophers. Where's my shotgun? Uh, screw the shotgun. My, I'm, I'm going to get my stick. I'll get my tree. I'm get my stick. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I'm uh, scrolling through my notes a little bit here. I forgot to mention this about Marlo. My gamer mm-hmm. friends will appreciate this. Marlo reminds me of a character from HeroScape, which is the best board game ever, uh, named Drake Alexander, who's a World War II commando with a gun, a katana, and a bionic arm. <laughs> so doesn't have the bionic arm, but he's got all the other cool stuff. And while we're on the subject of the characters, I am going to throw this out there. I have said this ever since I first saw the movie. The Chinese woman, you could have cut her out and nothing would have been missed. She has maybe seven lines in the whole movie. It contributes nothing to the plot. She doesn't even become monster fodder. She survives the movie, but I barely even remember that she's there. When I first saw the film, I thought she might have been one of the Mothra twins. That was later. Like, like she (laughs) Yeah, I know that. But I thought maybe she was a prelude to that. So when I realized that this was they were doing this whole monsterverse, I wondered, does she have a twin sister somewhere? And she's one of the priestesses of Mothra. But they just did nothing with her. Yeah, you guessed right, but it was for the wrong movie. This could be mildly controversial, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway. I think she only exists because they wanted to get this movie to play in China. And China has very stringent rules about what American films that they will allow in. They have crazy rules. The Chinese government has ridiculous rules about what you can have in there. And one of the things you have to include is it has to have something Chinese in it. Whether it's Uh, a part of the movie takes place in China, or there's a Chinese character, or whatnot. And Legendary is now owned by... Their parent company is now a Chinese company. They weren't always that way. But... I think that's the only reason she's even in here is mm. so they could, for lack of a better way to put it, pander to China <laughs> because they wanted that. They want that China money. And I get it. It's a giant market. Right. There have been other films that Legendary has done that did this far more organically, like Pacific Rim. There's a huge set yeah. piece in Pacific Rim that takes place in Beijing. No, not right. Beijing. Well, you know, not Beijing. Hong Kong. That yeah. felt natural. You know, she, that felt natural. She was actually... You know, she was in Pacific Rim. Yeah, she was in Pacific Rim Uprising. Exactly. Oh, I have opinions about that movie. <laughs> Don't <laughs> get me too, started on that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, at least she does more in Pacific Rim Uprising. But yeah, Next in this, yeah, yeah, in this, yeah, in this, she's just there. <laughs> just throwing. I'm that not gonna there. lie. I thought about that most of the time. I was waiting for something to happen with her. I really wanted her to be something and nothing. Like, she's like, we got to go. We have to leave at dawn. And they're like, no, we have to wait. Like, that's all. Like, she was a clock. That's basically what it was. She was telling you what time it was and then going, look, science. Yeah. Oh, I should have brought this up when we were talking about Marlo. What did you think of the credits sequence? Because it's oh, so yeah. completely different from the rest of the movie. So you're talking about the end of it with uh, everything else. See, that's when that's Marlo goes back that, to his family. That's part of why I love Marlo, though. Like they spent so much time on him and building up his him as a character to give him an end credit like that to show him going home. I thought that was great. I really wonder the people who worked on the film if some of them had a I don't know maybe Roberts or somebody had a connection back to somebody that was in Vietnam that never came home 
and this was their dream. Like, this is what, like, if so-and-so had come back home, this is what it'd be like if they came home today. I definitely would agree with you there. And like it was, I, we'll it get was, into it. A, we'll get into it a little bit more when we get into the next segment. But I do think it's very interesting how this film handles Marlowe and his homecoming. Marlowe, you know, he's a World War II vet. He's not a Vietnam vet, and he got a welcome that was much closer to what World War II vets got than what Vietnam, what Vietnam vets, vets got. got. Yeah, and, it, and it was that was a so whole thing. Different. Like that's the reason why I was watching. Like again, like you said, World War II Vietnam, very different homecoming yeah he got what i think every i know what every vietnam vet wanted yeah and and never got i was even i was thinking about this the conrad may be the cool but two-dimensional character but he does have some really potent lines and one of them was no no man comes home from war not really right and i think that was literally true for marlo until you got to that credit sequence and for Packard and anybody else who fought in Vietnam, it was definitely true. But interesting fact, the actor who plays Marlowe's son mm-hmm. in that scene was the same actor who played young Marlowe at the beginning. Are you for real? No. And that scene was a last-minute addition. It was put in, oh. I think, just a few months before the film was released because test audiences resonated so <laughs> well with Marlowe that they wanted a little bit more. Yeah, and I know for that, some, I've heard some people complain that it doesn't quite fit in with the rest of the movie, and I get it, but it was very satisfying because he was the one character I wanted to see just just a tiny right. bit more, just a tiny bit more. And I love how right. it's shot like it's a Super Eight film. Super like 8? It was somebody's yeah. like it was actually somebody's home movies from the seventies. Yeah, so I love that. So the style of it was perfect, and I love how the final shot of him is sitting on the couch eating a hot dog, watching a Cubs game. Right. Because the first time we see him, halfway through the movie when it's John C. Riley, he says, you people are more beautiful than a hot dog at Wrigley Field on opening day. Yeah. Which is wonderful. And I can vouch for that because I have been to Wrigley Field. I have seen the Cubs play. I totally get what he's talking about. (laughs) That's so cool, man. So, yeah, it was the perfect ending, I thought. Yeah. I thought it was, again, I love stylistic changes in certain things. I love when they get artistic with certain things. And I thought that was a beautiful artistic piece. And again, I think it had a statement behind it at the same time. Like, a, But they, like I said, they just built him up to be this great character. And I, you said before, we need more of this character somewhere. Yes. <laughs> Give me a book, something. Yes, I want more. You know, cave sure, drawing, something. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's fan fiction. <laughs> While we're on the subject of the end credits... This movie, in true cinematic universe fashion, <laughs> has a post-credit scene. Thank you, Marvel, for popularizing this. Right. <laughs> a, a post-credit scene that actually, if you pay attention to the credits, gets spoiled a tiny bit because right at the end of the credits, there's a mention of how Godzilla, Mothra, Rodan, and King Ghidorah are all trademarks of Toho. <laughs> <laughs> like you couldn't hide that a little bit <laughs> right <laughs> but it's actually what i think one of the best post-credit scenes i've seen in anything even marvel because mm-hmm. it starts off as almost a parody <laughs> of a post-credit scene because <laughs> it's just black and you hear conrad say you're just gonna sit there in the dark right. It's, so, it's breaking the fourth wall, but not really breaking the fourth wall. Because <laughs> when it, the, it, when you actually see the scene in context, it's because he's 
looking through two-way glass and he knows there are other people on the other side and he's like, really, you're just going to sit there? <laughs> right. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and then the little, there's some snappy dialogue in there too. I love it. He says, I promise not to tell the Russians. And Mason says, I promise to tell the Russians. <laughs> <laughs> It, oh. it was great. And then you find out, oh, this is Monarch. And Kong is not the only king. And then they have this wonderful montage with a slideshow. They, they broke this. They, they broke away from this in King of the Monsters. But in both Godzilla 2014 and Kong Skull Island, it seems like slideshows are Monarch's thing. <laughs> right. They love like slideshows. all they do. It's all they do. I, I, wait, I was just waiting for somebody I, you know, to slip in their their family their family vacation slides. You know, just wait, <laughs> what? Where did Oops. this come from? <laughs> Sorry, that was the wrong slideshow, guys. Yeah, you did do that once during a briefing. What the heck? I heard that story. It was kind of awkward. I didn't know Jimmy could wear that. Yeah, I didn't either. It was a little frightening. <laughs> it was one of those times I'm like, why did we de- decontaminate the beaches again? <laughs> yeah anyway <laughs> so and then we have these cave paintings where we get to see this wonderful teaser we get to see godzilla and mothra and rodan and yeah. king Ghidorah, and it ends with them playing godzilla's roar and you're like yes i remember the first time i saw it i was pumped because i'm like yes the next movie oh my gosh it's gonna have all of them and it's gonna be amazing and it was <laughs> the hype train got started right then. Oh man! <laughs> True Marvel fashion. It, it was so beautiful. Yeah, it was so beautiful. Oh, it's exciting! <laughs> it's an exciting time to be a kaiju fan. It was, man. I mean, like it set off like a lot of people. It wasn't to that point that people really got excited about the kaiju genre, in my opinion. You had Shin Godzilla come out, and also, and that that kind of ignited some excitement, especially for the anime nerds. Um, yes. <laughs> Thank you, opinion, Ano. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, up until that point, I don't think most of Americans really had interest in the kaiju genre. I, I say that there obviously there's a lot of people out there. I mean, a lot of people like, you know, home dudes from the kaiju apostle. Oh, I, mean, I love those guys. <laughs> I mean, obviously, there's people who are fans of the genre. And it seems like there's a lot of older individuals who are more into the genre than anything else. But at the same time, that ending scene was so well done that it made people excited for the movies. Like they wanted to see more. They wanted the big action fight scenes. I mean, I was happy with yeah. the, with the action scenes in 2014, but I guess I'm weird. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. And I thought it was a great set off. You know, unfortunately the, just throw it out there, the movie that came out later, that tried starting their own cinematic universe flop, the mummy. Oh man. And that was a terrible attempt to launch a cinematic universe. But oh. something about skull, the way they did Kong Skull Island it really did get got people fired up for it. Yeah, at this point, I don't care what anyone says, the MonsterVerse is currently the only other successful cinematic universe out there. <laughs> DC tried, but now it's a shared universe, but not quite a shared universe. It's weird. Yeah, not at all. Yeah, it's 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 weird. But you know, <laughs> just to kind of run through a few other quick things about this movie from my notes. You can thank Guardians of the Galaxy for starting this, but we have all of the pop and rock music peppered throughout the soundtrack, including, I might add, two songs by my dad's favorite band, Creedence Clearwater Revival. (laughs) That's a true story. 
And I have to admit, hearing those songs in this movie actually got me a little excited because I grew up listening to Credence, thanks to my dad. <laughs> I can respect that. Yeah. I can really respect that. And, you know, and then we got some Black Sabbath thrown in there, too. That was fun. <laughs> I think the music was such a great job, though. Like, yeah. it really grounded you in the era. It did. So I will give them credit for that. But like I said, Guardians of the Galaxy started that trend, and not everybody has implemented it well, shall we say? I'm looking at uh, you, Suicide yeah. Squad. <laughs> the problem with Suicide Squad is that it didn't ground you in, a, in an era. Like, again, the Guardians of the Galaxy in this one, the music was used to ground you in a time frame, in a mindset of the individuals. Obviously, the music from Guardians of the Galaxy was the music from Home Dude's, like, childhood. Star Lord. And yeah. And then this was like, you know, I mean, it was, these were the war songs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> this is the stuff that, and so it built the world up. Whoever, like, again, I'm, I'm one of those people who I really enjoy the technical aspects of films. And scoring a film is super essential. You can change the tone and the feel of an entire film by changing one song. Yeah. And they brought you into a world using their music. Yes. Like, they, like the whole fight scene. Wakong, the first part of it, they could have eliminated everyone else's sound and just had the music and you could feel the tension and the fury of the moment. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was just, it was done well. I appreciated it so much. Funny little thing I noticed here, you you had the John Goodman character, which we didn't didn't talk a lot about him. I do like him. I think, unfortunately, they killed him off way too early. (laughs) I wish they had kept him around a bit longer. I love how... I wanted his backstory more. Yeah, I love how... When he's uh, trying to get uh, going to the senator or congressman, which, uh, whichever, and he was saying, "Oh, we need more money for Monarch." And he's like, "Really, Monarch? You guys are no better than SETI or something like that." And, you know, search for extraterrestrial <laughs> intelligence. Says, yeah, but right. those guys are nuts. I'm like, well, that's a little funny, and it's actually a little ironic now because King Ghidorah is a an alien, so <laughs> exactly they missed something. <laughs> Mr. <laughs> big something. Yeah, a big something. <laughs> I also thought the the scene when Conrad's listening was like, "Let me tell you all the things that could kill you." And I said, "If this, I wrote down, if this movie took place now, he would uh, add coronavirus <laughs> to the list of things that would kill you in the jungle." <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> I also, I actually looked this up because there's a little joke about how people were surprised initially that Mason was a woman. Mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, that's interesting. So I looked it up. Mason actually isn't a unisex name. I wondered if really? it was. This is pure conjecture on my part, but I wonder if maybe that part had originally been written to be male. And at the last second, when they got Brie Larson, they just decided to, or maybe they just said, we need a woman in this movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's like, we'll just make Mason a woman and have a joke <laughs> about the name. Okay. Right. I don't know. Like I said, conjecture on my part. I don't know. It seems like a good guess. I don't know, because again, they needed a female to link up with the mythos of there's Kong and then there's a woman. Yeah. You know, they needed that character in there. And you could tell they were really going for like, hey, we're going to do things very differently. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, just the tone of films coming back out in 2017, it was like, let's buck the system, something different. Yep. And so you have, you know, the strong, I'm I'm out to fight the war and I don't need a man yeah. type of mentality. Yeah. And, um, which definitely so fits sense. with Brie Larson, especially after you watch yeah. Captain Marvel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Another movie I have yeah. strong opinions about. I'm going to leave it at that. The, oh, Next time did, did you, uh, I'm sure, I'm sure Bex, our friend Bex noticed this from redeemed otaku because I know how she loves this movie. Did you notice that Jackson quotes himself 
from Jurassic Park? Yeah, I did. <laughs> Hold on to your butts. <laughs> yep. Oh my gosh. I see. That's the thing. That's why I love Jackson. As foul as he is, he memes himself. He does. Like he just memes himself in every film, and he knows he does. He is like, one of the think- few people I have heard. I'm not a fan of swearing. In fact. I go out of my way to not swear on this podcast, and I've had a listener tell me that he really appreciated it. But I will tell you, Jackson is one of the few people I've heard who can somehow make swearing sound artful. <laughs> I right? don't know how he does it. It's like, did he use any words at all except for the F word? No, nope, not at all. What happened? <laughs> you know, and then you know, he almost says that trademark line you know, mm-hmm. before Kong squishes him. He's like, die, <laughs> you mother. <laughs> Right. But again, I mean, I mean, I, I, mean you, I will tell you, Jimmy does a lot of things around here, but he is definitely appreciative of the fact that he doesn't have to hit a, a, a what do they call that? Uh, like a drop button or whatever it is in radio. <laughs> it's a bleep swearing or something like that. Oh my gosh. Jimmy's the man. <laughs> yes, you are. Yeah. Go ahead. Acknowledge your awesomeness. Yeah. We're moving on now. <laughs> he did survive a space war. Yes. <laughs> he reminds me of that often. <laughs> also, a couple of quick things. The scene with the squid. Yeah. That's actually an homage to two things. One really? that I caught immediately and one I had to read about because I haven't seen this movie yet, although I think last I checked it's on Netflix. But it's a an homage, obviously, to King Kong versus Godzilla because King Kong fights a giant octopus in that. Oh. Mm-hmm. And it's also an homage to a Asian action movie called Old Boy. Oh, yeah. Which I have not seen, but I'm curious to see it now. Yeah, I saw part of it a while back, and it, it looked pretty cool. I, had, I never got a chance to finish watching it, though. So we've talked a bit about the tone in this movie, and I started to notice, particularly this time around, the kind of sense of humor that this movie has. It's it kind of a weirdly cynical or at least subversive <laughs> sort of sense of humor. Because there, are, like there are things that happen in this movie that you expect it to go one way, and then it goes another. The best example, right. I think, of this is when you have that one soldier who had already been established as being kind of a dork throughout this whole right. thing. And then he has this moment where you think he's going to do this big heroic sacrifice. <laughs> and he's like, I mean, he's going to take all these grenades, and he's going to go up to the skull crawler, and he's going to get the skull crawler to eat him and then explode the grenades to buy all of his friends time to go and the music is swelling and all of that when you think he's going to do this and uh, the skull crawler just tail whips him into a mountain and he explodes so it was completely pointless (laughs) it borders on mean spirited right (laughs) it rides that line Oh my gosh! I just I want to see one day a riff track or uh, Mr. Science Theater Theater three thousand of this film and see how they would respond to that film that moment because it was its own riff track in that moment. <laughs> At points, like I said, you know, we we had the you know the post credit scene that sort of breaks the fourth wall, but not really. Exactly. It was a weird scene because I felt awkward laughing at it because like, oh my gosh, this is great. This is cool. This guy is like he's doing this, and then tail whip. You're like, do I laugh or what? Like, you just feel bad for this guy. Of course, yeah. then Kong comes out with a jump off the mountain. Yeah, he jumps right, off the mountain right with a rock. And then, so you completely, and that's a, a look, it's kind of emotional yeah. whiplash in a way, because you're like, wait, is that supposed to be funny? Should I laugh at that? Oh, wait, Kong with a rock. <laughs> <laughs> but that was the pacing of the film, though. You're like, 
what? And then it goes into something new, like right away. Like when they're in the boat and they're talking with Marlo about Kong's history and stuff like that. And they're like, well, what are the creatures? And he goes, they're mean, they're menacing. They're, I call them, but they don't, they don't dare speak their name, but I call them skull crawlers. <laughs> and they look at him and he's like, no, no, I say that loud. It sounds stupid. No, yeah, no, it's great. No, we love it. <laughs> that is very much a, a modern genre movie making thing they do the same thing with superhero movies where they have to take some sort of pot shot either at the name or the costume or something right. like that you know it's it's a thing so it's you know it's like yeah we're acknowledging it's silly it's like you know what sometimes i wish people just embrace that part of it right although with this at least it makes some sort of sense because it's a guy who's a little bit crazy and he's like i named them skull crawlers now that I say that out loud, it sounds kind of goofy. <laughs> so it's like this. So it's like the two sides of his personality kind of clashing a little bit there, the rational and the irrational. <laughs> because this is definitely a very much a descent into a heart of darkness sort of thing, mm -hmm. which is a very common theme in King Kong movies I've been noticing. In fact, another motif that I saw replicated in this that I've seen in almost every single one of these King Kong movies Kong gets caught in chains and he breaks them. Mm. That is a thing. I You see it in, I think, almost every single one of these Kong movies. There is a scene where something like that happens. He's in some sort of captivity. In this case, which right. is him getting tangled in the chains and then he breaks them. Right. With his, you know, That's he, interesting. Which I, I find utterly fascinating. And I've read some essays that argued, at least in the original movie, that this was supposed to be symbolic, we'll say, of slavery. Right which I find interesting. But it, like I said, it's a motif that keeps getting used in all of these. Mm -hmm. So, like I said, I find it fascinating. It's a become this part of the character. Right. I mean, that's kind of part of, like, like with all these these monster films, anything that's been rebooted, there's a lot of motifs that people just pick up on. And I, don't, I, I gotta wonder if the original people who, who wrote the original scripts, who wrote the original things, if they expected these small moments to become such a rolling piece of it. You know what I'm saying? Like, do they just go, yeah, this is a small thing, and all of a sudden, you know, they find out 50 years later when somebody's remaking the film, like, why are we making a big deal about this? Yeah. And it reminds me of, like, I think it was the Beatles, and they wrote that song, I'm the Walrus, I'm the Eggman. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, there are whole classes of people, like, dissecting the song and, and trying to understand, like, what are they trying to say? What's the political meaning behind it? What's, what they, how are they corrupting young people? And, like, we purposely made a stupid song because we knew you'd overanalyze it. <laughs> Genius. <laughs> and so I, I have to wonder, like, the guys who originally did Kong, was he going, yeah, I mean, it's obviously we're, we're breaking the chain of slavery arc. Or is he like, he hears that that's the thing now, and he goes, wait, what? <laughs> why, why are we making uh, this a Marion thing? C. Cooper, the, uh, one of the directors of that film, actually did say for years that there wasn't a bunch of underlying meanings in what he was doing in that movie. It was meant to just be, as he put it, the greatest adventure movie ever made. That, right. that was what he was striving for. There wasn't a bunch of hidden sub, you know, symbolism and all that in there, which is why I <laughs> laugh at some of the ridiculous interpretations I've heard uh, and read about of that film. Right. That's crazy. <laughs> oh. Absolutely crazy. Yeah. But welcome to the world of academia. Trust me. Right. I know. <laughs> People are just bored. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I wonder. But this is a good place for us to transition to our next segment. I love the little joke at the beginning after we've had the credits, which, by the way, I was very happy that this is a modern film with a title credit sequence. Those <laughs> went away, and I wish they hadn't gone away. Right. 
And it actually provides a little bit of exposition for us. You know, it's showing us what has happened, all the major things that have happened between the end of World War II and 1973. But once that is done, and we go to when we're introduced to John Goodman, and he's in a car, and there's a bunch of anti-war protesters around them in Washington. And he says, it'll never get this screwed up again in Washington. (laughs) Oh, the irony. (laughs) Oh, the irony. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> which like I said this is, would be a, a great point for us to now transition to our next segment to talk about the end of the Vietnam War let's go like I mentioned before the Vietnam War is all over this movie it was influenced by Vietnam War films it's set in 1973 And the big thing that was happening in 1973, historically speaking, was the end of the Vietnam War, or at least the end of the U.S.'s involvement with the Vietnam War. We see President Nixon giving the speech when he says, we're pulling out. And there's even a Nixon bobblehead in the helicopter, (laughs) which I have to believe was some sort of little commentary, whether it was commentary on what was going on at that moment or about current politics, which is as much as I'm going to say on that, because... I don't feel like starting flame wars. (laughs) Jimmy's already got a flame war started with John LeMay. I don't need another one on my hands. No more flame wars. (laughs) In the war, dude. He says no, obviously. Well, then drop a bomb and call it done. You're working on one? God, I don't want to have to fill out the paperwork in case John LeMay's house mysteriously explodes. Anyway. Yeah. Moving on. Yeah. (laughs) Interestingly, the Vietnam War, like World War II, inspired many films and books. It was a huge, especially in the United States, was a huge cultural zeitgeist, I guess you could say. It was very integral, particularly to that generation. Mm -hmm. And you saw it was particularly strong in the 1980s. You saw a lot of movies that either were about the Vietnam War or they touched on elements of the Vietnam War. You had stuff like Platoon, Full Metal Jacket, Missing in Action with Chuck Norris. <laughs> the, and one of my favorites, because it actually influenced how I do this podcast, that being Good Morning Vietnam <laughs> with Robin Williams. I had a listener who figured out that that's who I styled the intro to this podcast after, and I was so oh, happy. Cool. So now all the rest of you know, yes, Good Morning Vietnam <laughs> inspired the, how I opened this podcast. And there were countless, there were countless others. If they weren't directly about the Vietnam War, they were referencing things about the Vietnam War. You know, Missing in Action is not a Vietnam War movie. It is about a soldier who goes back to Vietnam because he finds out that some of his buddies who were MIA during the war are still alive and are being held captive, so he's going to rescue them. But then Platoon and Full Metal Jacket are actually, and Good Morning Vietnam, are set during the war. Right. But if you think about it, that makes sense for the, these things to explode up back in the 80s. You had everybody who came home from Vietnam. You have everyone who kind of dealt with the, the aftermath of Vietnam. And what do we do with all the stuff we've dealt with? Well, we, we make movies. We write, we write books. We express ourselves through the arts. And so it makes sense that this yeah. exploded back in the 80s. I mean, even going back to comics, influenced comics too. The Punisher was originally oh, yeah. a Vietnam War veteran. Exactly. And it made exactly. total sense. So this discussion is going to be specifically on the end of the Vietnam War, because that's what's happening in this film. However, in order to fully understand, because the movie does a pretty good job of presenting this. This is a period Mm -hmm. piece. So, you know, this is 40 years after the fact that this movie is touching on this subject. 
it would have been a little bit different if this was a 70s movie about King Kong right. touching on Vietnam. So it's a little mm-hmm. bit of an after-the-fact sort of a thing. But in order to understand what is being presented in this movie, you do have to have a little bit of background. But I'm not going to go into copious detail about everything <laughs> that happened with this war because there is so much information out there about the war itself. So much. So the stuff before the 70s, well, really the late 60s, early 70s, I'm just going to touch on a little bit just to give a bit of context and then focus on other things that are more pertinent to the film. So for those who don't know, the Vietnam War actually started in 1955, but its roots can be traced back to World War II. Vietnam is in Southeast Asia, which is relatively close to Japan and is neighbors with China. Vietnam had actually been under the control of the French since the 1800s, but it was invaded by Japan during World War II. Then there was a communist leader named Ho Chi Minh, which should be a familiar name because there's Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam, started a government there called the Viet Minh, or the League for Independence of Vietnam to combat the Japanese invaders and the French colonial government. And then after the Japanese withdrew... He took over the northern city of Hanoi and declared a Democratic Republic of Vietnam, which essentially became North Vietnam with him as president. However, the French backed an emperor named Bao Dai. If I mispronounce these names, I'm sorry. (laughs) In July 1949, and that set up another Vietnamese state in Saigon that served as its capital. That was South Vietnam, essentially. And Bao, he was educated by the French, so he had very close ties to the West and wanted to model South Vietnam more so after the West, while obviously Ho Chi Minh in the North was a communist. So he was modeling it more after China and the Soviet Union, who backed actually, you know, jumping ahead a little bit, both of those countries backed him in the conflict that followed, which was one of the reasons why Vietnam became such a hot point because it essentially served as a proxy war between the United States and the Soviet Union. It was a very much a Cold War sort of conflict. Mm-hmm. In the years that followed that, there was a guerrilla war that got started by the North against the South. And they also started, and I find this name interesting, although it's retroactively interesting. This was a thought I had watching the movie. We have the Viet Cong. Mm. Now it's Cong with a C and not a K. I'm surprised nobody brought that up in the movie. It would have been interesting if Packard made uh, made some sort of comment about Kong and the Viet Cong, trying to connect that, them a little bit. I've never thought about yeah, that. Yeah, we've already film. made conne- actually... yeah, we've already made some connections metaphorically, you know, and kind of reading into his character a little bit. But I kind of wonder. But the Viet Cong was a mass political organization in South Vietnam, but they were part of North Vietnam. Right. And they were called that derisively by a later government because they were Vietnamese communists. You know, Viet Cong. I guess it kind of goes along with that name. There was a treaty signed in July 1954 that split the country along the 17th parallel, which is 17 degrees north latitude. That's a term I remember hearing before I did all this research. Right. It was one of those terms that was often used in news reports and stuff like that about the 17th parallel. So I have this little line here from history.com. It says, in 1955, however, the strongly anti-communist politician Ngo Dinh Diem pushed Emperor Bao aside to become president of the government of the Republic of Vietnam, or GVN, often referred to during that era as South Vietnam. And then Hmm. President Eisenhower pledged to assist Diem. Uh, But there was no, and this was one of the big sticking points for white people, grew to hate this war, was there was no official declaration of war. Mm -hmm. 
but it was very similar to the Korean War, which was just a few years before this. This right. fit into the United States policy of containing communism. Mm-hmm. They wanted to halt the spread of it. They weren't going to go into a full-fledged war with the Soviet Union because, well, that would be bad. That <laughs> would be a bad I mean, idea for a lot of reasons. It was going to be a huge bad idea. Yeah. But again, that was the thing was like communism was this, it was a terror force that was there. And if you can't, I mean, we're seeing now, I mean, if you, something you can't deal with, you contain it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, people can't deal with COVID, so we're containing it, you know? <laughs> and that's how we treated communism. We're like, we can't, we can't handle this. We can't get rid of it necessarily. Yeah. So we contain it and hopefully it dies off. And you saw that anywhere you saw communism take place, you saw a destructive society that was falling to pieces. Yeah. That is eventually what happened to the Soviet Union. Exactly. You know, that's the reason why America had that mindset. It's like, look, if we just contain it, if we don't let it spread, then it will eventually literally burn itself out. Because that's the reason why communism spreads so rapidly is because they need more resources. They need more stuff to pass around to everybody else. So they take over more and more territory. It, it becomes very aggressive in later stages of people using communism as a mentality, a thought process. So the U.S. involvement did start in 1955 with President Eisenhower, and then Mm -hmm. it got ramped up again in 1961 with President Kennedy based on what Mm. was called domino theory, which the best definition that I found of that said domino theory, which held that if one Southeast Asian country fell to communism, many other countries would follow. So Kennedy increased U.S. aid, though he stopped short of committing to a large-scale military intervention. There was a lot of communist anxiety in the United States, particularly in the 50s. And it went into the 60s as well, which I think probably helped fuel this. Mm -hmm. By 1962, U.S. troops increased. This is kind of nuts. This will be a theme, you'll notice. U.S. troops increased from 800 to 9,000. It's over (laughs) 9,000. There you go. That was for you, Dallas. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate the the talking reference there. This was increased by President Lyndon Johnson due to the instability in the region with 82,000. So they went from 800,000 to 82,000 in Vietnam in June 1965. And there was a demand for another 175,000 by the end of the year. That is crazy. Yeah. And then by November 1967, there were 500,000, a half million American troops in Vietnam. And they had already had 15,000 casualties. That's crazy. That is a lot. Mm-hmm. I know there were a lot of people who were talking about the number of troops that this is a very, these are very easy comparisons to draw. Something from our time, our generation, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Right. There are comparisons to be made. We never had that many people over there. Not that right. I can think of. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think we ever had that many people over there. I don't think we have. I mean, I'm not an expert on the military. Now, I do want to point this out. You said it was 15,000 casualties. To be fair, and and, and any lives has too many lives, that's only 3% of the manpower that was dropped there in Vietnam. Yeah. Only 3%, which, again, it's a terrible thing, and I hate saying it in this way, but that's a negligible number of casualties when you're looking at war, especially in this time period where it was a dirty war. Oh, very. This was when napalm was invented. Napalm is exactly. nasty. Exactly. I mean, this was a dirty war. This was a, a war that, I mean, guerrilla warfare tactics and everything. So what caused people to really freak out about this, and again, tragedy, it's, it's always tragic when we have 
death of anybody. And of course, you have military and everything. But what really made this such a big deal was the gruesomeness of that 15,000 people with the napalm, as you point out, and the other aspects of this dirty war. Yeah. And uh, that's really what rent up the fear and the disgust of what was happening there in Vietnam. That and the, we never actually declared war. <laughs> yeah. You're hitting at it a little bit. Have you ever heard the name General William Westmore? I have not. Yeah, this was the guy who was in charge of mm-hmm. the Vietnam War. And his strategy was war of attrition. Mm. Kill as many enemy soldiers as possible. He even designated right. areas that were called free fire zones. Good golly. They assumed that all the civilians were evacuated, but I saw enough stories that said that, unfortunately, not all of them were. Right. And there was a lot of collateral damage. I'll I'll, I'll say that much. Mm. That was another part of this that made it such a dirty war and why there was such violent reaction to it. Right. But it wasn't just that. The soldiers themselves, they were growing restless and they doubted their the whole purpose for them being there and the government's reasoning for sending them there. A lot mm-hmm. of them, which is still was a thing that was talked about for a long time after this war and we're talking about it again now with modern veterans. They suffer from PTSD and often turn right. to vices like drugs, alcohol. They just couldn't handle mm-hmm. it. I found this quotation from a historian named Shelby Stanton. He was talking about the collapse of the U.S. morale at this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it goes, In the last years of the Army's retreat, its remaining forces were relegated to static security. The American Army's decline was rapidly apparent in its final stage. Racial incidents, drug abuse, combat disobedience, and crime reflected growing idleness, resentment, and frustration. The final handicaps of faulty campaign strategy, incomplete wartime preparation, and the tardy, superficial attempts at Vietnamization, which, jumping in here a little bit, that's something we'll get into in a few minutes. Mm-hmm. An entire American army was sacrificed on the battlefield of Vietnam. Mm. That is not too far from the truth, unfortunately. Yeah. Not at all. Because of this, there was, as I mentioned, huge animosity about this right. war. This was also, interestingly, the first televised war. America's first televised war. Media Which coverage I don't think was I realized all, that. Yeah, media coverage was all over this thing. Mm-hmm. You had war journalists. Oh, wait, we have an embedded war journalist in this movie who took pictures of war and stated that she was an anti-war photographer. Right. And like Packard even clear. tells her, <laughs> Packard even tells her, cameras are more dangerous than a gun. Right. So that was his kind of snide little way of saying, it's people like you who lost us this war. Mm-hmm. So there were people over there, they were filming this, they were taking photographs of it, and they were putting it in Life magazine. They were putting it on television. And by this point, televisions were incredibly common, so people were having horrific images of this war beamed into their living rooms every night. Right. Which makes me wonder how we have not lost our minds because we have 24-7 news cycles now. Right. Well, we are. We are losing our minds. Look at all the coronavirus hysteria. But (laughs) But that that plays into the whole conversation of have we become desensitized to these things, you know? Yeah. And society, I mean, it's nothing for people to see a film. Even like this film here, the film itself would have been considered vastly traumatic for some individuals in this time frame. Yeah. I mean, to see the stuff that they were seeing. 
So the all the atrocities of the war, atrocities against civilians, the drug use, the chemical warfare. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Agent Orange. Mm -hmm. Nasty, nasty stuff. And that is a big reason why this war started to be seen as a quagmire. Mm. And interesting thing, I found out there may have actually been, I have no idea, again, conjecture on my part, I wonder if Mason actually may have been inspired by real-world figures. Mm -hmm. I found out, thanks to Wikipedia, this is a little excerpt I found from Wikipedia, said women also played a prominent role as frontline reporters directly reporting mm. on the conflict as it occurred. A number of women wow. volunteered on the North Vietnamese side as embedded journalists, including author Le Min Khu, embedded with PAVN forces on the Ho Chi Minh Trail, as well as on combat fronts. A number of a prominent Western journalists were also involved in, the, in covering the war, with Dickie Chappelle being among the first, as well as the last American female reporter killed in a war. Good golly. Yeah. The French-speaking Australian journalist Kate Webb was captured along with a photographer and others by the Viet Cong in Cambodia and traveled to Laos with them. They were released back into Cambodia after 23 days of captivity. Mm. Webb would be the first Western journalist to be captured and released, as well as cover the perspective of the Viet Cong in her memoir, On the Other Side. Another French-speaking journalist, Catherine Leroy, was briefly captured and released by North Vietnamese forces during the Battle of Hue, capturing some famous photos from the battles that would appear on the cover of Life magazine. Crazy. Sounds like Mason was keeping some good company. I'm, I kind of wish they had actually <laughs> they had actually mentioned any of these people. I wish she said they were my heroes. That would have been cool, actually. Right. Really cool. Well, they would have been at that time, though, co-workers, actually heroes. Well, yeah. That you know, but she could probably talk about them like they were heroes, you know. Yeah, yeah. Like she admired Absolutely. them for what they did. Right. Public opinion, particularly when you get to the late '60s, because of stuff like this, did start to turn against the war. Only a third of Americans by 1970 believed that the U.S. had not made a mistake sending troops to fight in Vietnam, mm. especially yeah. on college campuses. Yeah. At this point, when war protests really started to ramp up, you know how we have the stereotypical view of you know peace-loving hippies from the '60s. Mm -hmm. They were a big part of it, right? There were lots of youth movements, not just in the United States, all over the world. I did an episode on my previous podcast, Kaiju Vision Radio, with Brian Scherchel, where we talked about youth movements in Japan at this time. I remember it was, that. It was just over different things. Yeah. So the late 1960s, early 70s became an era of war protests, like I said, in response to all of this. 37,000 people gathered in front of the Pentagon in October 1967, which is a crazy for me to think as I've been to the Pentagon. I didn't go inside, but I've been to the Pentagon. Really? Yeah. A month after 9-11, too, I might have. Oh, wow, dude. So it still had the giant hole from the airplane. That's crazy. Yeah. Riots broke out at the 1968 Democratic National Convention. How crazy is that? Mm-hmm. Man. Although at this rate, we may not even have a Democratic National <laughs> Convention this year. Man. On college campuses, like I said, across the country, the youth were turning against the war. Columbia University was the site of an infamous protest in 1968. Thanks to the school mandating segregated entrances and sections for non-white students in a gymnasium that was being built and its connection to a government organization called the IDA that was building and researching weapons for the war, hundreds of students 
protested by doing a sit-in in the office of the university president. Wow. Yeah. This eventually resulted in violence, where over 100 people were injured and over 700 students were arrested. That's wild. And then I have uh, this little quotation here from History.com. It says, Opponents of the war argued that civilians, not enemy combatants, were the primary victims and that the United States was supporting a corrupt dictatorship in Saigon. Mm. And then on November 15th, 1969, the largest anti-war demonstration in America happened in Washington, D.C. There were over 250,000 people who gathered peacefully to say that the American troops needed to withdraw from Vietnam. Right. And as I said, you know, the, that, this anti-war movement was very, very powerful, very strong on college campuses, and it divided right. Americans. For young people, the war symbolized unchecked authority, and they had come mm-hmm. to resent that. Well, for other Americans, you'll see this when you hear, you know, you see these stereotypes, like I said, these stereotypical hippies in, you know, in movies and stuff. Other Americans saw opposing the government as unpatriotic and even treasonous. Yeah, that was the weird balance of the things. How much do you stand against the government when the government's doing something wrong? And at what point do, is the government actually wrong for doing something? This was certainly one of those time points of history where there was some weird gray area going on. And you had people on both sides of the lines. And this is my problem with some of the protests that I see even today. There's no communication in the protests. Like in today's protesting, at least, like you see people like, oh, they're just shutting down whoever's speaking and never allows dialogue to take place. And I'm curious about this time frame right here if there was a dialogue between the two groups or cause like in the films that you watch about the time frame, there's no dialogue. It's you darn hippie, get off my yard type of mentality. Or, you know, you know make love, not war. You know, the exactly. very absolute. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Which is the interesting thing because I didn't mention this when we were talking about Vietnam movies, but the attitude in most Vietnam movies was one of ambivalence. They don't really come out one way or the other about the war. I think it's ambivalent because there's no good answer. No. Everyone walked away from this war kind of in shock and awe. They're going, what just happened? Was there some good done? Yeah. Was there some terrible things happened? Yeah. Like if there was a score sheet, nobody knew how to score it. No. And I think it was also a generational conflict as well. So you had the young people Mm -hmm. who were against it, but their parents who were probably World War II veterans had a much different Mm -hmm. view on things. Right. So I think that played into it as well. Sure. There was an anti-war activist named Bill Zimmerman who recalled that, quote, people who supported the war were fond of saying, my country right or wrong. Those sentiments seemed insane to us. We don't Mm -hmm. want to live in a country that we're going to support whether it's right or wrong. So we began an era in which two groups of Americans, both thinking they were acting patriotically, went to war with each other, end quote. And I think that describes it perfectly, like we've been saying. Mm-hmm. So another form of protest that was happening about this, you, have you ever heard the term draft dodger? I have. That was a big thing at this point. So the draft was reinitiated, and that was where they had to get a lot of recruits. There weren't people who were voluntarily signing up no. to go fight in this. They had to draft a lot of soldiers, which I think fueled a lot of the resentment on you know, mm-hmm. both for the soldiers and for the general public over here. And there were several rather famous draft dodgers, one of whom was Muhammad Ali, the boxer. Yeah. And this was very different from World War II. You had to fight people off. There were people going to recruitment offices everywhere wanting to sign up. Mm-hmm. There, were, there were draftees too, but there were a lot of people who signed up, a lot of young men who signed right. up to go and fight that war. 
both of my grandfathers were part of that. I've, well, right. I, do well, think, I think the- one of my grandfathers may have been drafted, but I know for sure one of them signed up. I mean, heck. Well, in the World War II, you had people like lying about their age oh, just yeah. to go fight the war. Yeah, lying about their age or, you know, you've seen Captain America. I mean, he tried lying about a lot of things because he had to go do it. Exactly. I have this other excerpt here from Wikipedia that says many young people protested because they were the ones being drafted while others <laughs> were against the war because the anti-war movement grew increasingly popular among the counterculture. That, mm. I think the 60s is where you really start to see counterculture become a thing. And just to kind of right. go back to the Godzilla films a little bit, once you get to the 70s, there's a couple of Godzilla movies where you see elements of the counterculture in Japan mm. starting to show up. Some advocates within the peace movement advocated a unilateral withdrawal of U.S. forces from Vietnam. Opposition to the Vietnam War tended to unite groups opposed to U.S. anti-communism and imperialism, and for those involved with the new left, such as the Catholic Worker Movement. Others, Mm. such as Stephen Spiro, opposed the war based on the theory of just war. That was a term that I remember hearing about a lot, especially when I was doing my undergrad. That was when I was introduced mm-hmm. to that concept. It's an interesting concept and one I think worth debating. Not here mm-hmm. necessarily because that's not <laughs> you know, what we're here to talk about. This is right. you know this isn't a history podcast necessarily. <laughs> Some you want that listen to hardcore history. Some mm-hmm. wanted to show solidarity with the people of Vietnam, such as Norman Morrison emulating the self-immolation of Thick Opang. I'm not sure who that is, but I, I get what they're saying here. Like I said, I was finding so much interesting information on this. It's it's a little overwhelming at points, to be honest. I'm sure. Now we come to 1969 with President Nixon. So we finally have gotten to the president that we see in this film. There's a lot that could be said about Nixon, <laughs> about a lot of things. But he right. took office in 1969. And he tried at first to apply more pressure on the battlefield in Vietnam, but later attempted Mm -hmm. to appeal to, this was a term I remember hearing talked about a lot, especially in the last few years, the silent majority, Mm. silent majority of Americans who supported the war by implementing what was called Vietnamization, you know, that term I had mentioned earlier. Right. This involved, this is interesting because we tried to do stuff like this in Afghanistan and Iraq. I remember that from the news. This involved withdrawing troops and giving South Vietnamese soldiers the training and weapons necessary to keep fighting while the Americans continued aerial and artillery bombardment. They also started peace talks in 1968 in Paris, but private, as in secret, talks headed by Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, there's a name you'll hear a lot in your history classes, (laughs) had to be conducted because both sides used the public talks as propaganda. Man, what an interesting time people lived in. What's that old phrase that's meant as a sort of a pseudo curse? May you live in interesting times. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So I have this line here from history.com. The North Vietnamese continued to insist on complete and unconditional U.S. withdrawal, plus the ouster of U.S.-backed General Nguyen Van Thu, I think that's how you say that. Again, my apologies for the pronunciation. As conditions of peace, however, and as a result, the peace talks stalled. Right. And then you had things like My Lai Massacre. This was very unfortunate. March 1968. Yeah when we were talking about the free fire zones and the war of attrition, 
this was the worst example of it. U.S. soldiers mercilessly, that's the word I saw used to describe this, mercilessly Man. raped and killed 400 civilians in a village. And then in 1969, you have what was called the Green Beret Affair, where eight Special Forces soldiers, including the 5th Special Forces Group commander, were arrested for murder of a suspected double agent. And it provoked national and international outrage. I wonder why. And it only yeah, added exactly. fuel to the anti-war fire at that point. It was getting so bad towards the end of the war. With the mixture of the drug abuse, the mixture of everything else, the PTSD, People literally were losing their minds over there, yeah. and I mean, it just it just added to the 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 frustration for the anti-war movement, and I think everyone. And then in 1970, there was a joint U.S.-South Vietnamese operation that invaded Cambodia, hoping to wipe out enemy supply bases there. And then the South Vietnamese did their own invasion of Laos which was pushed back by North Vietnam and the invasion of these countries in violation of international law sparked a new wave of protests on college campuses, which led to yet another infamous anti-war protest on a college campus, May 4th, 1970, Kent State in Ohio. I remember hearing about that. Yeah. The National Guardsmen shot and killed four students. And then there was another protest 10 days later, and two students at Jackson State University in Mississippi were killed by police. That Ooh. is bad press all around. That is not going to oh, help yeah. your cause there. So finally, Absolutely. we come to the early 70s, the actual end of the war. Right. By 1972, and we I'd hinted at this already, but less than 30% of Americans agreed with their country's stance on the conflict. And they didn't like the fact that it wasn't just regular forces, but conscripted men who were being made to fight it. And there was massive opposition to it because of that. Right. Here's an insane number for you right here. 1,728,344 men from age 20 to 26 were drafted to serve in the Vietnam War. Good night, man. Yeah. That was a whole quarter of all troops. That is so crazy. We're going to start... Getting into some numbers here, and they're huge when you stop and think about it. Mm -hmm. So by the end of June 1972, after a failed offensive into South Vietnam, Hanoi was finally willing to compromise. I got this off of history.com. Kissinger and the North Vietnamese representatives drafted a peace agreement by early fall. Keep in mind, this is a year before the film takes place. But mm -hmm. leaders in Saigon rejected it. And in December, Nixon authorized a number of bombing raids against targets in Hanoi and Haiphong. I believe that's how you say that. No, sure. these were called the Christmas bombings, and they drew a lot of international condemnation. I can understand why, because you know it's definitely in protest. You know, not in protest, but mm -hmm. in response to poor negotiations. And then January 27th, 1973. So we're now we're at 1973, the year of this movie. The United States and North Vietnam concluded a final peace agreement that in this ended hostilities between the nations. War between North and South Vietnam continued for another two years until April 30th. So we're actually coming up to the anniversary of the end of the war. Mm -hmm. So the 45th anniversary of the end of the war. That's crazy. And that was when DRV forces captured Saigon and renamed it Ho Chi Minh City, like I talked about before. By the way, right. the President Ho, Ho Chi Minh himself, mm -hmm. he died in 1969. Really? Yeah. U.S. troops were pulled out completely by March 29th, 1973, which I think means we can infer that this film takes place after that date. 
I don't know how yeah. long after that date. We just know it's 1973, but it would have to be after that. You see them in uh, at the beginning of the film. They're celebrating because they get to go home, and there's like one last job that's given. Yeah. So I would place the film to be probably in April time frame. That yeah. sounds about right. It looks like it could be April. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about poor Vietnam has experienced two decades of conflict, devastating toll on their population. Mm-hmm. Two million Vietnamese died. And three that million is, more were wounded and another 12 million became refugees. That's so crazy. Those are insane numbers to think about. Yeah. And the war devastated their infrastructure and their economy. Mm-hmm. And they were able to rebuild from it, but it was slow going. Right. And as we've been mentioning here a little bit, there was a lot of lingering effects from Vietnam in the United States as well. This definitely seems like something that it the primary countries that were affected by it were definitely Vietnam and the United States. I mean, yeah, there were some other nations that were involved in the Vietnam conflict, but most of the time people talk about what happened to Vietnam in the United States. Right. I mean, when you have a half million troops there, how can you not? Exactly. We had such a presence there during that time frame. The United States spent $120 billion, billion with a B, dollars yeah. on the conflict. From 1965 to 1973. That's just eight years. I don't even want to think about the total amount of money that was spent on this thing. Right. And this massive spending led to widespread inflation, which was exasperated by what Ben Avery and I talked about in episode eight, which was (laughs) the oil crisis of 1973, when the gas prices were jumping up. Right. Well, here you go. Some estimates for the total amount of money spent were between 138 and 168 billion dollars. Hmm. And predictably it resulted in a budget deficit. <laughs> wow. But where <laughs> you really saw the toll as we've been talking about a little bit here was psychologically. Yeah. Yeah. That was the worst part of it. Yeah. It ran even deeper, honestly. This war completely undid the myth of American invincibility. Mm-hmm. This was really, honestly, the first war America ever fought where it lost. Right. You want to talk about a psychological blow. There you go. Well, that's the thing is, like, they lost, but they didn't. We just kind of walked away. You almost get, understand why Packard was the way that he was. I mean, we just stopped and pulled out. Now, legitimately, we needed to stop. Nobody was happy. Nothing was going forward. It was like almost an awkward stalemate. And if I, I'm not sure what would happen if we'd stay there. Yeah, and trust me, I know what it's like to deal with people who have PTSD. Just talk to my producer. <laughs> He's had a few spells here and there, even on the air. Oof. Hey, I don't bring it up to make fun of you, man. I'm just bringing it up to let everybody know PTSD is a very real thing. Yeah. And if you think I've made light of it a little bit on the show, my apologies. It's That was not my intention. Just right. saying. Although I still it's, don't it's, understand how Baby Yoda cures you. I'm still trying Yoda to figure that out. Happy. <laughs> baby Yoda makes everybody I, happy. That's what happens. It does. Sometimes with Jimmy, you bring up the war in space. He kind of runs off into a corner, but I put on the Mandalorian and let him binge a few episodes, and he's fine. So, Heck yeah. Do it. Apparently, Baby Yoda is you know almost Jesus. He cures everything. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> I kid, I kid. <laughs> but anyway, many returning veterans. This is one of the things that really illustrates the difference between World War II and Vietnam. Mm-hmm. 
the veterans who came back faced incredibly negative reactions from both opponents of the war who viewed them as having killed innocent civilians. Some people even called them baby killers. Mm. Okay, baby killers. I, that makes me think right. of, uh, have you ever seen First Blood, the yeah. Rambo movie? I think he even mm-hmm. he brings that up. He brings up that people called him baby killer. Yeah. And it, you want to talk about a fantastic movie that touches on Vietnam. That's a great one. It is. Yeah. It, it shows the, the hardness of it. That's the terrible side of things. These guys came back home to, to some of them. And some of these guys probably didn't do anything. Yeah. Just the fact they were there, though. But then supporters of the war saw them as the guys who lost it. Mm. They shamed them for losing the war. Mm-hmm. And then you had the physical damage, including the effects of the exposure to toxic herbicide, Agent Orange. We mentioned Agent Orange a little bit because you know chemical warfare was a thing here. Millions right. of gallons of this stuff was dumped by U.S. planes on the dense forests of Vietnam. Oof. Here's something for you. I was thinking about this. It didn't occur to me until I was watching this movie this time. But we have a very interesting contrast here with, say, Packard and Marlowe. Marlowe's a World War II veteran. Mm -hmm. Now, he didn't get to go home in 1945. But when those veterans came home in 1945, they came home to parades. Mm -hmm. Marlowe even makes a comment about parades, you know, that were there parades. You know, we talk about Vietnam, the Vietnam War. It's like, did you guys get parades or something like that? Or, no, he was talking about the end of World War II, you know, know, the parades for it, which is weird because he didn't actually, he missed his parades. Yeah. And I think that's interesting because Packard does meet him in at least one or two scenes and he has respect for the guy. But I'm also sitting here thinking the irony of this whole thing. Marlowe missed his parade. He would have been regaled as a hero. Yeah. Coming home. Packard didn't get that. Packard right. was one of those guys who came home in disgrace. Mm-hmm. And I find that to be a fascinating contrast between the two. And I don't know if that was intentional on the filmmakers parts and they don't do a whole lot with it, but I still think the idea, I think, is there that you have this contrast. Yeah. It's just, it's just such a blaring contrast. And there, I, you, it makes you wonder, by this point, Packer knew the way Americans felt about it. I can't help but wonder if he was avoiding going home. Like, we know he did. Like, he took the job. He was excited to have another job to go off and keep fighting. Because like like he took the phone call and he was like yeah I can do this like he he there was a set level of excitement to continue to fight but was it to fight or was it because he was avoiding the shame that was being thrust upon him when he came home like he didn't want to go home but Marlo did yeah that was another like big there's difference. so so many contrasts between the two guys one guy just wanted to be home and eat a hot dog and watch a, a baseball game the other dude just didn't want to go it's just like I mentioned what what Conrad said. The mm-hmm. man really comes home from war. Exactly. <laughs> for Marlowe, that was literal. And for Packard, that was metaphorical. He never came exactly. home. Exactly. He needed a new enemy mm-hmm. to fight. That was another line in this movie. It's like, you know, people have to find an enemy to fight. And the, the government's response didn't help either when these guys no. came home. The World War II vets, they got benefits through the GI Bill. Vietnam vets didn't get that. Mm. And some of them just completely ignored the VA altogether because yeah. of that. The That's World so Wars inspired morale boosts in culture. The Vietnam did not do that. It fostered right. a counterculture of media that focused on the atrocities and opposed it. And that had lasting effects. I still think there's a potent streak of that now in the United States. A little bit. Interestingly, you know, we'll jump ahead now after this film. Well after this film. Mm-hmm. 1982. Yeah. 
the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, which I have had the privilege of seeing. Oh. Yeah. That was when it was unveiled in Washington, D.C. And on it are inscribed the names of 57,939 American men and women who were killed or missing in the war. There were additions to it later on, and it took the number up to 58,200. Here's some more numbers for you. Mm. 21,000 veterans were permanently disabled because of this war. Wow. 159,303 were wounded, and 1,948 were missing in action. That's a lot. That's crazy. And when the war ended, almost 600 American prisoners of war were released. So some of them did come back. But mm-hmm. you know, there's still a lot more. It says to this day, which this article I found was from 2017, it said there were still 1,800 who were still unaccounted for. Wow. That's nuts. I know that was a big That's thing crazy. in the 80s, the whole MIA thing. It was a big thing in right. the 80s. But yeah. there's still 1,800 of them they haven't found. I had no idea. That's crazy. Yeah. I can't imagine that anyone would want to hold on to them for that long. And then as of 2013, the U.S. government was still paying the veterans back and their families. And they're giving them $22 billion a year. Wow. In war-related claims. That's another huge number. That's just insane. I'm curious how much that really lies out to. When you, I mean, we had so many people who were drafted or pulled in. or how much that they're actually getting from that benefit. There's a lot more that could be said about this part, but I'll save this for, uh, for Jimmy. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but I do want to touch on it. There was even opposition in the ranks to the war, which we'd hinted at a little bit. There was insubordination. There were soldiers who were defying their commanders, mm. which honestly sounds a little bit like in the film when Packard's men turn on him. Yeah. Yeah, that one young guy. Packard's mm. telling him not to listen to Conrad, and then the guy turns his rifle on Packard, and Marlez says, I can't do that, sir. <laughs> right. Still trying to maintain that military respect to his commander. Mm-hmm. He just he can't do it. There are some people who question the severity of this breakdown, especially among mm-hmm. combat troops because of the opinions of, as they call it, angry colonels. I'm like, well, that <laughs> sounds like Packard. <laughs> right. <laughs> Packard's definitely an angry colonel. In fact, I'm pretty sure he, he is a colonel in this. So there was a lot of talk about how traditional military values were eroded during the war. Although I would argue that a good soldier is not one who just blindly obeys orders. A good soldier is one who does what's right, even if it means defying orders. Well, that's where you get into a lot of theory and conversation about what a soldier is and isn't. Yeah. And at what point does your personal opinion about what is right, what's wrong, cross over with what is and what isn't? And, you know, that's where you get into the whole conversation of just war. It's where you get into the conversation of where some people don't, they, they refuse to go to war. That's how some people got out of the drafts is that they took a religious stance saying that this, they can't do it. They, Conscientious they objector. That's what I'm looking for. Thank you. So this island is messing up with my head. I don't have words anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, trust me. I know. (laughs) I definitely know. (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, that's where you got into some of the stuff where people are like, where's the line? A soldier is a soldier. They have one job and they have to do that job. And that's where some of these guys that came back home, that's where the things run into is like, people would ask like, well, why didn't you just not do it? And it's like, I'm a soldier. What yeah. it's supposed to do. I know that in the military, there's a, we, I live in a military community. Uh, we have a lot of military in our area. We have an Air Force base just right over the river. And so I've talked to a lot of them. One of my mentors is a former Marine. And there's this phrase that they have of hurry up and wait. 
<laughs> and it's this mindset where like they come in, they yell at you, you gotta get all your stuff and you gotta be on the tarmac by 0500 stat go. And everyone's rushing. They're in there and they're, they're 0500. Boom. They're there 10 minutes ready to go. And they're going, okay, cool. Now you wait for what you just wait. And like four hours later, suddenly something's happening. Yeah. But that's the mentality of you just do what you're told. That's literally how they train and teach soldiers. Just do what you're told because of your authority has a plan and a purpose for it. I know. So. I'm from a military family myself. Uh, both oh, yeah, of there my, you go. Yeah. Both of my parents were in the Air National Guard. It's where they met. Mm -hmm. And so oh, wow. I was very well versed in that. I think that was part of the reason why my first ever novel was military science fiction. <laughs> oh, wow. Pandora's hey, Box. Pandora's Box. <laughs> if, if you want something to read, Dallas, I do highly recommend picking it up. I'll check it out. I yeah. did a quick little search, and uh, Packard was a lieutenant colonel. Oh, okay. I was close. Mm -hmm. I was close. You were. <laughs> You're losing your touch, Jimmy. He beat you to it. <laughs> oh, calm down. Your pride <laughs> will heal. <laughs> Faster right. than your shit did. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so I've got a couple more quick little points here. We'll bring up a couple more presidents. Like I said, there's a lot that could be said. I found an entire oh. quotation here from Ronald Reagan where he voiced support for the war. He was a war veteran himself, so I can understand why he would be saying yeah. it, especially at the time that he was saying it. But before him, we had Gerald Ford, the uh, successor to Nixon after he resigned, where he told a cheering crowd of students that national pride could not be, quote, Achieved by refighting a war that is finished as far as America is concerned. Mm. So he's definitely voicing his agreement with the youth of America. Right. But then 10 years later in the 80s, during the Reagan administration, he coined the term Vietnam Syndrome. That was not a term I had heard before, but I definitely I know either. what it is. Mm -hmm. He coined this in a speech that, you know, I have a whole quotation from it, but for the sake of time, because <laughs> I don't want <laughs> another, <laughs> I don't want another episode that crosses, as Danny put it, the Kurosawa threshold. <laughs> <laughs> the, he coined this in a speech, a term meant to describe the reluctance of the American public and politicians to support further military interventions abroad hmm. because of the Vietnam War. Right. But like I said, in the same speech, he did voice support for it and actually went as far as to call it a noble cause hmm. because they were going in to defend South Vietnam and win freedom for them. Right. I do like this. I'll read this portion of it. This was him talking about how Vietnam veterans were being treated because of this. Hmm. He said, we dishonor the memory of 50,000 young Americans who died in that cause when we give way to feelings of guilt as if it were doing something shameful and we have been shabby in our treatment of those who returned. Man. And I couldn't agree with him more. This Absolutely. was well before my time. This was before I was born. But I think he's right. I do right. think... This is the sort of thing that I've said to people in my lifetime in reference to Iraq and Afghanistan now. Say what you right. want about those wars, but the soldiers who go there and they serve and they fight, they deserve your respect regardless of what you think of it. Exactly. I think people need to learn to partition the war from the warriors, so to speak. Absolutely. And give respect to the warriors for what they're doing. Right. And, and that's the problem is you have these people who did such terrible things in the war 
And it is one of those things where one bad example in our mentality, we associate with the entire grouping. And that's part of the problem is people get distaste because of one person did something stupid. And that's why it's so important for us where we're at to work our tail side off because we represent the whole. I'm a little scared mm-hmm. of that sniffle. <laughs> <laughs> don't you, Sorry, be, man. Don't you be bringing coronavirus into my studio. <laughs> oh, man. It's a, man, we got the yellow cloud of death going on out here, man. It's, it's flower season. <laughs> Pollen everywhere. Oh, well, you could thank Mothra for that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Keep shedding all of that pollen. <laughs> she has to use it to defend herself against the other kaiju. Oof. <laughs> anyway, I think that's a great place to end on that. I want to end on a positive note. It's a difficult yeah. subject to talk about even now, all these years later. Yeah. And there's still a lot of strong opinions about it, about whether or not Vietnam could have been won and how it could have been conducted so that it wasn't this black mark in American right. history or world history for right. that matter. It's very indicative of the Cold War at that time and what was being done. And, I mean, I hate to put it this way, but if the alternative is nukes, I guess it's the lesser of two evils, but still doesn't make it pleasant. Right. I am admittedly, unlike the guys over on the Kaiju Apostle, I am not a pacifist, but neither am I a warmonger. Right. That's my stance on it. I think that's one thing that people get confused about is if you're not a pacifist, some people automatically assume you're a warmonger. And there's a balance between it. Yeah. Uh, you and I were talking about before about our views on politics. And I like to think that you and I, we try to hold things to be very balanced and in the center. And I think that's where a lot of things go out of hand is that people become very unbalanced in their view. They go so extreme in one place or another that there's this distortion of reality. And we even see that in the film where you have people that have just gone, like Packard, he became so so distorted with reality. He went so extreme that common sense just went out the window, completely another out of the window. Yeah. And so uh, we have to maintain this balance. I definitely think that you, know, you are right there. And I think that's, if nobody gets any other lesson out of this episode or this film, I hope they walk away with that at the very mm-hmm. least, which is uh, something I'll be talking about, I think, a little bit more in a future episode. I don't want to hype it too much because it isn't the next episode. Because I think this is a good point to wrap things up and talk about our next episode, which will be a mini-sode on the 1959 science fiction classic from Toho, Battle in Outer Space, which has everybody who wasn't working on the Three Treasures (laughs) in it. (laughs) Like Ashura Honda and a few of the actors. And I'm actually going to be breaking my own system, I guess you could say, but I've already done it already. I will have a guest on, actually, for that one. I will have Luke hmm. Giaconetti from the Earth Destruction Directive podcast to talk with me about this film. So, that sounds like an epic name for a podcast. It is. Let me tell you. It's actually a reference to a Japanese title for a Godzilla film. Godzilla vs. Oh, Gaiden. Wow. That is the Japanese title, Earth Destruction Directive. I'm going to check that out. Oh, yeah. It's epic. <laughs> and then the <laughs> next big discussion episode, because unfortunately, Godzilla vs. Kong is not out right now. So the conquest has to go on a little bit of a hiatus. And by <laughs> a little, I mean eight months. So, wow. <laughs> so we're going to have to wait till November to get back on it. In the meantime, I have some other films in the queue to bide our time until that happens. The first of which will be Rebirth of Mothra from 1996. 
And for that episode, I will be joined by our mutual friend, Dallas, Becky Beck Smith from Redeemed Otaku. Yes. <laughs> to discuss I love Beck. this. She's so awesome. In fact, not only that, we're going to be looking for the next three months of episodes. We will be looking at that trilogy, and she will be on for all three episodes. Leg Hasp. <laughs> a, a trilogy, you say? Yes. Hopefully the coronavirus will be done because I think she would have a good time here <laughs> on the island. I know she loves Jurassic Park, you know, our competition on the other side of the world. But you know, I think even <laughs> they're shutting down because of the coronavirus. <laughs> so nobody can beat it. this virus, at least not yet anyway. <laughs> Last thing we need to find out is that the thing can be spread by kaiju and dinosaurs. Right. Considering the fact you're going to be covering a, a monster that has more transformations than there are Sailor Scouts, I think it'll be good. <laughs> yeah, I think Goku is looking at Mothra Leo in those movies and be like, dude, how many super forms do you need? <laughs> what is your final form? <laughs> Ultra Instinct Mothra. That's mildly terrifying. Ooh. Nobody give that idea to Mothra. Please don't. <laughs> Ooh. Please don't. <laughs> All righty, Dallas. Uh, got any final words for us before we sign off? Yeah, man. It was a pleasure being on here. And how do I get back to my ship? <laughs> or, or am I still quarantined on the island? What do you think, Jimmy? Really? He says he'll uh, get a hold of Glicks for you. He's curious about this little AI you have on your podcast. Hey, hey, no flirting. Oh, you're not into robots? <laughs> At least robot women, right? Because I know you work on right. robots in your garage. Well, this is getting awkward. <laughs> yeah, I really don't want to get all Westworld on this. <laughs> so, I'm going to have to have you guys come on to our ship later, and uh, we'll have a conversation about some other things. Oh, I would love to. What about you, Jimmy? Really? Yeah, you would like to actually come on? You've never guested with me on any of these other shows, so that would be interesting to have us both on. That'd be cool. I, I would like love that. that. That'd be legit. Yeah. Let me make this happen. Let's make I'll, this I'll happen. Talk, when I get back to my ship, I'll talk to Celeste, and we'll see if we can make plans. Oh, yeah. you got to make sure the wife is on, is in on this. Yeah. But speak, you need to bring the duo with you. Yeah. Which, speaking of that, an episode of the Monster Island Film Vault would not be complete without some shameless self-promotion. Do it, man. Word. Hey, yeah. Hey, guys. I want to encourage you guys to check out um, Geek Devotions. This is a show from Devoted Geeks. are devoted to letting people know that they are loved. We take geek pop culture items like movies, video games, comic books, kaiju, and other kinds of great things. And we have guests on like, uh, like the, the guy you're, who you're listening to normally on this podcast, Nathan, on our show, to take certain things and let you know that you're loved, let you know that you're cared for, let you know that you have a plan and purpose in line for you. And so if you want to check that out, go on to uh, YouTube, check out Geek Devotions. You can go check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just look for Geek Devotions. Or you can go to our website, geekdevotions.com. All right. Thanks a lot, Dallas. I look forward to seeing you and Glicks with Jimmy and Celeste on your show. Just let me know when you'd like to make that happen. And I'd love to have you come back here when hopefully you won't be stranded here for two months. <laughs> Yes, that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, until next time, listeners, cue credits. Thank you for listening to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast produced and hosted by Nathan Marchand. If you enjoy the show and want to join the discussion, we'd love to hear from you. 
So email us at feedback at monsterislandfilmvault.com. Your message could be read on a future episode of the show. Our website is monsterislandfilmvault.com. Follow us on Facebook at Monster Island Film Vault and on Twitter, where our handle is TheMonsterIsla1. You can also follow Jimmy from NASA on Twitter at NASA Jimmy. I have fulfilled my contractual obligations. The podcast logo was created by Tyler Souls from TylerDrawsComics.com. Our theme song is Wander on the Offensive, live edit by B33J, Sarax, Juan Madrano, and Nonsensical Lexus, which is a remix of Counterattack, Battle with the Colossus, and The Open Way, Battle with the Colossus by Kowatani from the video game Shadow of the Colossus. It can be downloaded from ocremix.org. All film and audio clips belong to their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, YouTube, and other fine podcatchers. Please rate and review the podcast to help spread the word about the show. The Monster Island Film Vault is a Moonlighting Ninjas Media production. Sayonara! <laughs>